Previously on the Project Umbrella podcast. Oh shit! I've just realised that if Mr. Sorry, if Mr. Spencer isn't here, does that mean he's going to get another expert <laughs> <laughs> answering his questions? Great white is huge. See, like, oh, what the heck? The, the, the whole aquaring moment is absolutely brilliant, and you just run like shit. And if you're injured at all, you are so screwed. After completing Resident Evil Revelations. I sold my Nintendo 3DS through the local paper, and then six months later, I received the very same one back as a birthday present from my brother-in-law, minus the power pack. I see. So you, uh, you, the present you gave away, you then got back? Yep, that's it. Goodbye. <laughs> what a funny story. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Project Umbrella podcast. Yep, we can't believe we've reached 10 episodes either. I'm Nick, better known as Neptune, and joining me today for the podcast is the Batman. Hello. And George Trevor. Hello. It's Mr. Spencer. All right. (laughs) (laughs) And that's all I'll say for two hours. And our very special guest for this evening, the Wanderer. Well-known veteran of the Resident Evil series. With nearly 50 posts on the Project Umbrella forums. Author of the original Game Facts plot analysis. Genesis of every Biohazard timeline since. Returning to the world of evil after a six-year hiatus. From Seattle, Oregon. Thomas Wilde is the Wanderer. Hi there. I guess I'm supposed to say hi. How come and I squeeze them? They don't even know my name. They call me the Wanderer. Coming up on today's show, we're going to be looking at all the latest news, as well as some site news. We're going to take the opportunity to speak to Thomas Wilde, who is our special guest for this evening, and talk more about his plot analysis, which really was the precursor for many of the chronologies of evil timelines and uh, other things that everyone's done in the past. So we'll look at that. And then the main topic of discussion today is the classic game Resident Evil Code Veronica in brackets X. Close bracket. And of course, we'll be ending with Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. So, uh, Thomas, I hope you're looking forward to that. And I hope you're clued up on your Resident Evil. I think I might be able to hold my own. Superb, super. Right, so, uh, before we crack on with the news, uh, I just want to quickly say hello and welcome, Thomas, to our very special podcast for this evening. Thanks, so, good to be here. Oh, I'm, I'm pleased. Uh, what I would like to know is how, one, you got into Resident Evil, and more importantly how you ended up doing what you did and uh, oh. working with GameFAQs in particular and things like that, just to explain to the listeners your life. <laughs> I was born the son of a poor Filipino. <laughs> no, let's see. 
I played the original Resident Evil back around the time it was released, and I hated it. Just could not get used to the controls, hated the voice acting. I've never been a big fan of playing things that are so bad they're good. I can handle movies like that sometimes, but not so much games. And so I just ditched it for a while. And then a couple of years later, uh, Silent Hill came out, and I loved that game. I remember I happened across a article about it, and somebody said... You know, you should check out this game. This is really awesome. So I played that for a while. And then I was talking about with my a buddy of mine, Kevin, who will probably wind up listening to this podcast one way or the other. And he said, well, I know you hated the first game, but you should try Resident Evil 2 if you liked that, if you liked Silent Hill that much. And I had some free time. So I figured, OK, and I wound up liking that a great deal more than the first game. Just because the storyline was better, the voice acting was better, just a huge improvement all the way around. And from there, it was really interesting to me that games were, even in that weird zygotic 1998 state, because I hadn't played Half-Life yet, obviously, but um, they were moving forward into kind of a genuinely cinematic story space, and that really excited me after having not played video games for a few years. So I got into it, and from there, that kind of goes neatly into why I came aboard on the plot analysis. I don't know when you guys got into the series, but you got to go back to post-RE3 in 1999, during the hype period for Code Veronica, and uh, back in the day, the place I used to hang out with when I wanted to talk about Resident Evil for, with people was uh, Evil Online, the late lamented Evil Online. Um, about the same time, I got into writing FAQs because I was hanging out on GameFAQs a lot and playing a lot of video games. And I thought, you know, what would be fun is to contribute to the site just because there was really no greater or more romantic cause than that. I have been using this site for a while. Maybe it's time to give something back. And I wrote about how to get Jill's diary in RE3 and uh, transcription of the EX files in the N64 version of Resident Evil 2. And N64 version, I, I still think, is the result of some kind of black magic. I don't know how they pulled that off. <laughs> yeah. Just such a, good, such a good port in so little space with the randomizer, which I think is one of the best post-game unlocks in the series. And a very good editorial on Project Umbrella is available. The compression of you. That was very smooth. Not bad. Kudos. And, um, but and this dovetails back to the evil online thing. So at that point, I had you know, a file about how to get all the files in RE3 and a FAQ about how to find all of the EX files in the N64 version. And I was getting a lot of email at that point about various things that people did not understand about the series to date. Like, why did William Birkin want to leave Umbrella when there's a file in Resident Evil 2 specifically saying the G-Virus will let me become the CEO of Umbrella? And uh, at the time, the evil online discussions tended to be really, really weird because everybody would just argue for days at a time about the weirdest little minutia. And they would enact this enormous multi-stage conspiracy theory to explain something which is perfectly innocuous. The one that all, that stuck with me all of these years later was there was a long discussion on there one day about how... The question was, how did Nemesis in Resident Evil 3 keep finding Jill Valentine? Oh, okay. how, did, how did he just keep popping back up whenever she got to a new area and somehow he was ahead of her. And the discussion had evolved into this weird direction where it was like, um, 
Brad Vickers was an umbrella employee and what? there were track there were tracking devices and conspiracy theories and a grassy knoll and just the entire thing was this enormously complex web of cause and effect which drew in no way on anything that was actually in the game and this is going to sound like one of those stories where a guy comes out of nowhere and just owns everyone but I assure you that's not what I'm going for with this <laughs> And I was just looking at it and going, okay, so Nemesis is, in the game, supposed to be smart. That's a huge plot point, that he is much smarter than any of the other bioweapons, and he is, in fact, of typical human intelligence. He may actually be, in this particular circumstance, smarter than Jill because he's toying with her. He wants the game to go on for as long as possible. She gets that out, out of the end of the game. And you're asking how a person of relative intelligence is supposed to be able to track Jill Valentine? You could track that girl from orbit. You know, every place she goes to explodes. She's the only person firing weapons. She's leaving this long trail of spent shells and dead monsters behind her. You'd have to be blind, stupid, and possibly dead not to track her. And you've, and you've <laughs> got to come up with this weird friggin' conspiracy theory out of nowhere for it. And I said as much and killed the thread. And uh, th at that point, I'm starting to think, you know, maybe somebody should write all this crap down. And I went back to GameFAQs because I remembered there had been a plot analysis in there written by Dan Berlue, who I had corresponded with briefly, but not really said anything of lasting import to. And I found out that at that point in time, he was unable. He was actually legally prohibited from updating that particular plot analysis mm. because he had done the official Prima Games strategy guide for Resident Evil 3. And as part of doing that, you have to sign a non-disclosure agreement of incredible strength and coverage to the point where every time I sign one of those, I'm not sure if I'm able to tell anybody anything anymore because Prima is a imprint of Random House, which is a very large publishing company. And they got lawyers. They got lots of lawyers. And so he just could not talk about Resident Evil 3 at all for the next five years. So he just had to let the plot analysis drop. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I can update this for him. I emailed him. He said, sure, go ahead. And I wrote down... A bunch of stuff about it, got a lot of feedback, updated accordingly, went back and forth like that for a few years, and um, it turned into this weird jigsaw puzzle that I enjoyed solving. That Because the series is actually more coherent when you sit down and break it down than anybody gives it credit for being, but they hide all of the pieces in such disparate places that you really have to sit down and look at it and work really hard to figure out what's going on, at least at that point in time. Nowadays, of course... As you guys have more or less proven, we have access to more information and more ability to pass information back and forth because this is uh, 2000, 2001. Uh, no YouTube to put video information out there at the you know click of a button. You know, email was pretty good but could be a little bit slow. Not a lot of the stuff that we take for granted nowadays. Torrents were still a. I, I don't know when torrents exactly hit the scene, but I wasn't. I sure as hell wasn't using them yet. But yeah, you, know, you sit down and you work it out, and it became a fun side project. And then I stumbled backwards into a career where, for whatever weird reason, having worked on that was actually a professional benefit. I could actually walk up to people and say, yeah, I'm, I'm some kind of weird, world-renowned Resident Evil expert, and that would actually get me somewhere. Nice. As opposed to 95% of the rest of the time where I could say, yeah, I'm a Resident Evil expert, and they'd look at me like I'd just grown a second head and said it. And... <laughs> How does it all kind of compare, obviously, when you prepared your first plot analysis to... Because I know you've obviously just come back 
at least it appears to have just kind of come back on the scene and been able to look at the information that, um, in particular, Newsbot's been able to ascertain. Uh, do, do you think the essence of what you prepared is still there, or, or is it a lot of the kind of excitement and the uh, convolution of the series has been diluted, if you like, through the translations? I don't think it's the the translation. I mean, we always knew the translations were kind of crap mm. because the at the very least, Capcom has always been long on gameplay and less on anything which is not gameplay. You could go back to I remember uh, Rombi to tie it back to one of your past guests. He and I had a discussion back in the day because he found out the. Uh, Big problem with the Resident Evil Zero timeline was that some bright spark in their translation department had gotten a date wrong in one of the files. It had to do with when James Marcus was assassinated in the Resident Evil Zero storyline. Oh, yeah, it's 78 or 88. The American version said he disappeared 20 years ago. And I think in the PAL version it says 10 years ago. Yeah, but Rob actually sat down and tracked down every other version of the game he could because he was, I don't know, either more invested in it than I was or he had just had more depth of resource or... It's entirely possible that I was yonder somewhere gazing at a star and didn't care that much. It's actually 10 years ago, and that makes the entire thing make incredibly more sense, because at that point we had Wesker's Report 2, and if Marcus disappears 20 years ago, that throws the entire timeline into a tizzy and makes it kind of funny in retrospect, because it makes it sound like Wesker and Birkin walk into the Arclay lab in 1978, put down their bags, pop their back, stretch out their neck a little bit, and immediately assassinate their immediate supervisor. <laughs> As you do. That's how you advance an umbrella. Yeah, Birkin being only 16 years old at that point, and Wesker 18, fully trained in the assassination techniques. You know. Hey, gas mask guy, get over here. But, you know, not exactly their most Rube Goldberg of schemes. It throws the entire timeline off. It makes them look even more sociopathic than they were before, and it just doesn't make anything else work. But when it's just 10 years, everything is just fine. So Rob deserves full credit for chasing that down. But it was the first example I knew of, and this is years ago, where they aren't maybe paying as much attention to the content of the files as perhaps they should. And in a series where they offload so much exposition into the files, to a greater or lesser extent, that's really, really strange. And I don't think I think that's a good idea for somebody to hold their, their feet to the fire on that one and say, you know, there are people as much as the majority of fans are going to say that they're not in it for the story, and I get that a lot when I'm talking to people who are more casual fans of the series where their deal is I'm playing it to shoot zombies in the face and uh, most of the storyline is completely irrelevant to my interests so I don't really follow it. They're not going to pay attention to the files because they're not reading them. But there are a number of people who do care about that kind of thing and it's a good idea to go back and double check particularly with as intricate and large as the series has become. I'd agree with that. And apart from Resident Evil 4 where they, they seemingly didn't give a shit at least in the in-game files. Uh, well, <laughs> Resident Evil 4, that entire thing. You know, 5, a lot of effort went in with 5 and the in-game files to obviously relate it back to the main series. So you're right there. Um, I, I think there is still a contingent, even within Capcom, that do yeah. care about minor details that even though they're appealing to the, you know, the casual Call of Modern Duty Warfare crowd, that will want to get a grip of that and, you know, then get a kick out of these tiny little details, you know, the kind of itchy, tasty man, you know, they, they still want that little... I was just going to say, I think the last update was 2006, so why all of a sudden have you decided to update it? Basically, 
I've never stopped updating it. It used to be something that I would carry around with me on my laptop and work on it when I was ever stuck in an airport or something. Because in 2005, I became one of the head editors at a American game magazine called Hardcore Gamer. And that naturally took up a lot of my free time for the next three years or so. On top of that, the plot analysis has always been kind of a doomed project. It used to be a running gag in my correspondence with people that I would go through another POP3 email account about every six months or so. Just the accumulated weight of spam and viruses and remails from compromised correspondence and God only knows what else would just wreck the account and I'd have to bail out and start over. What you learn when you have a very high-profile project like that where you're corresponding with a lot of people from all over the world is that a lot of people do not really pay a great deal of attention to computer security, bailing on everything because the accumulated weight of spam and viruses would crash the system every so often. And then for a while it killed a lap. The plot analysis was actually stuck on a dead laptop. And on top of that, from RE4 through RE5, that span of time between 2005 and 2009, not a hell of a lot was going on. I actually tried to update it once before in 2008, but for whatever reason, GameFAQ simply didn't put it up. They've revised their back end a couple of times, and it's kind of hard to work with them because uh, you know, if you've come back after six years, they want you to prove who you are. And it's like, it's an old school website, dude. You didn't know who I was in the first place. <laughs> I, did, I don't have your, my social security number with you on file or anything like that. I don't know how you're expecting me to authenticate anything. But to get back to the original question, I had some downtime in August because I'm, I'm currently waiting to find out on a couple of freelance projects. And my hype level for Resident Evil 6 was getting really, really just embarrassingly high. Person of my advanced age. Yeah. And I thought, you know what? I've always meant to go back and release a new version of the plot analysis because... People occasionally track me down like a dog on the street and say, hey, when are you going to update the plot analysis? And usually my answer has been, have you seen what I'm doing? They'll track me down on something like my old live journal, which used to be I used to use as a work feed, saying, yeah, I'm someplace which is not my home, and right now I'm writing a magazine article, and I'm working on a strategy guide, and I've got all of these things in the fire that I'd like you to check out because I think they're pretty good. And they'd come in and they'd say, hey, how about this fan project you've been working on for the last six, seven years? And I'm like, could you focus on the paying work, please? Not only is, do I think it's pretty good, but I think it's a good excuse for why I'm not working on the free fan project. Because when you've spent your entire day writing and interviewing people so you can do more writing, the last thing you want to do is sit down at the end of the day and do more writing. When I had, I had some free time, I was really excited about RE6. I thought it was time to go back, finally play this copy of Dark Side Chronicles I've had sitting around forever, and update it and release it into the wild, shut some people up. Thank you for that. That's, that's very, very interesting. Any other questions you anyone want to ask, Thomas? I was curious, Thomas mentioned about Jill's diary and how to get Jill's diary in Resident Evil 3. How did that come about? Was that something that sort of information that, that had been made available that had been translated from a, a Japanese guide or...? Oh, um, no, that was nothing of the sort. Um, in Resident Evil 3, if you get all of the files in the game in a prescribed order... Yeah then the first file you have in your inventory when the game starts is replaced by Jill's diary. I think on that we can crack on with the news. Okay, first bit of news. The Resident Evil 6 E3 demo is now available at long last on the PlayStation 3 via Dragon's Dogma. I myself have not downloaded this because I don't own Dragon's Dogma. I know there is ways of doing it without it, but 
I'm not that technically advanced. From the information and what everyone says, it's the same build as the Xbox One, but they have made the improvements in the demo, such as the screen tearing is a lot less visible. Has anyone downloaded the new version? Nope. It's definitely the same build because the camera hasn't been fixed. It's still quite zoomed. You know, the zoom in. still takes up most of the screen. Yeah. It's strange that they're going to fix that then, but well, hopefully they will. Second bit of RE6 news, and I, I saw this some time ago and I was semi excited. The Resident Evil 6 has been leaked in Poland. I saw, uh, yes, yes, I, I saw, I saw the link. Um, I can't, someone on the website links it on. Um, in, in the horrible place called Poznan, which I'm afraid Manchester City fans now do the Poznan dance. <laughs> Football joke, don't worry, Thomas. Um, oh, y'all are talking about soccer. That's we, great. <laughs> we were. Yes, it's now been confirmed that there were German copies of Resident Evil Six, and they were stolen from the production warehouse. At first, when I saw it, I wasn't quite sure if it's legit or just something someone just faked some copies and whatnot, but no, it apparently appears to be proper ones. I myself veered away from any spoilers, so I can't comment on what they are. I can, and they're probably all bullshit. I, I tracked them down. so, because they're shit. Are they got... <laughs> I'll put a quick warning. If you, if you listen to that bullshit rumors, then cover your ears now. They, they're all directly traceable back to 4chan. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And it's stuff that's just like... It's like somebody sat down and said, how can I most greatly aggrieve the entire fan base at once? I know. I'll start rumors that Resident Evil 6 ends with half the cast dying. And um, then there will be a great wailing and gnashing of teeth. And I get to go home and sleep soundly in the belief that I have ruined a fanboy's Christmas. But I don't have anything other than just plain old common sense that... That's probably not how it's going to go. But I'll be able to tell you at some point today because I'm supposed to get a review build. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I'll tell you guys right now. I don't care what you're doing or how important the podcast is to you. The moment the UPS guy gets here, I am off this freaking thing. If, the, <laughs> if, there's a knock, if, if there's a knock on the door and you're asking me to call 911 because one of you is on fire, screw you, I'm answering the door. That's how it goes here. And um, Are you sworn to not tell anyone? It's probably under a substantial embargo, because usually when you get one of these things, you're going to get a disc in an envelope, which is made entirely of complicated legal agreements asking you politely not to talk about it too much. But I have already said on Facebook that I'm getting a review build, so I don't see any harm in saying that I'm getting one. here. I'll be reviewing it for worthplaying.com, if I can counterplug it. Nice, nice. And... Uh, but yeah, I'm fairly confident just based on what I know about Capcom and what I know about the series. Like, for example, the big spoiler is Chris dies. You know, that's something that the Ari Horror guy, what is it, Rely on Horror guy started spreading it around? His theory that Chris is going to die in Resident Evil 6, and that's, of course, a big, big thing in all of the advanced rumors that spawned off the Poland thing. And I think that if anybody, at, basically everyone at Capcom has been projecting something really hard that they want to turn this into a cash cow franchise and they want to do everything they can to make it as profitable as possible. And when they are doing that to some extent by exploiting the characters and the rich stable of IP they've developed around the series, why would they kill their main character? Yeah, it just doesn't scan. I don't know. I actually read a, another set of spoilers thinking they'd already been proven to be fake, but it turns out to be not the case. I'm not going to say what they are, but let me just say they are boring and predictable enough to be true. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So I hope to God they're not true. Oh, is that the one where uh, Ada turns out to be... I can't even think of something good to make up about that. Never mind. Yeah, the first thing I always think of is, okay, so you can clone Ada Wong now, so you could theoretically just churn them out like an assembly line. 
There's got to be something funny you can do with that, but right now I'm out of ideas. Okay, in, in other news, downloadable content has been announced. More importantly for you Xbox owners, you'll be getting it first. So you have the opportunity to give Capcom more money when they could have probably just released it on the disc straight away. Uh, no word yet as to what the DLC is going to be, but, you know, it's probably additional costumes, another Raider, that kind of thing. So, yeah, there you go. So if you've got an Xbox, lucky you. If they were smart, they would have gone. They were going to go on stage in the, at the Tokyo Game Show and just get whoever their producer is to go up on stage and just say, The DLC is a scenario with Claire and Jill. Are you happy now? Then he drops the mic and sea walks off stage. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be a new demo. We've, we've touched on demos. There's going to be a new RE6 demo, which is coming out on the on September the 18th. So put that in your diaries. That's going to be two weeks before the game launches. Unfortunately, though, Thomas has already said he's going to have the game before that. So, you know, let's not dwell on the fact that we'll be playing a demo when he's got the fucking game to play. Don't <laughs> feel bad just because I'm better than you. <laughs> Too late! <laughs> yeah, yeah, so this is going to be a, uh, a later build, a newer build, hopefully direct from the uh, game. I'm, I'm sure it's going to be exactly the same as the final release. With rumours, it's going to be fixed the main camera problems which Batman you've already alluded to were hideous. And we've got playable segments with Chris in the Edonia Republic, Leon at Tall Oaks University, and Jake in Langshang, China. So that should be quite exciting. So that's coming out on the 18th. Um, So I anticipate that we will be able to talk about that before the game comes out, with any luck, in in a future podcast. Yeah, that's cool. That's planned. Nice one. Other RE6 news, my god, there's a lot, isn't there? And this is very exciting. RE6 Lone Wolf mode. Has everyone seen this news? Uh, quite yep. quite new out. I mean, I think it's the question marks over whether it's going to be an exact replica of the co-op gameplay. Yeah, there's going to be bits, isn't there, when you, you want to go through a door or you need to do a lever, they kind of magically reappear. But apart from that, it's going to be just on your own through the game, which is something I always do anyway, like playing Outbreak. I couldn't give a shit about the other three characters that are just pissing me off running around like a headless chicken. I just go for it anyway. I can complete the game quite happily without their need, without them. The best no, part... Hopefully, hopefully it will work if it can increase the tension. Uh, yeah, uh, who, who knows? I mean, the best part of RE0 is when you're alone. Uh, in RE4, I chucked Ashley in the dumper truck and walked off. And <laughs> RE5 just pissed me off with um, Sheva in the background. So I, I'm looking forward to this, but we know that you have to spend your skill points to unlock this mode. It's not going to be an automatic mode. You can't choose to play it almost single-playerly. You have to uh, earn it. You have to put up with your character first. Yeah, I think so. Hmm. I don't know. I got a lot of use out of Sheva in Resident Evil 5, so I don't know if I'm that excited about Lone Wolf mode. The best bit about Sheva was with her tribal outfit. Well, the first time I played through the game, I got a lot of use out of upgrading the handgun as much as I could and just handing her all the ammo. It's the one time in my video game career, so to speak, that the AI being able to put a bullet through a flea's ass at a thousand yards has worked in my favor. Like in uh, 3-1, when you're piloting the fan boat through the marshland and there's that bit where you have to, uh, your AI buddy has to shoot the people in the towers before the gate goes down. Mm. And before I realized that was what was happening, Sheva just did it because she is an AI character. They don't miss. They might shoot bad guns at stupid places, but they don't miss. So that worked out pretty well for me. So I don't know if lone wolf mode is really a big deal. (laughs) 
Uh, the final bit of news comes from Biohazard Damnation, which we're all getting very excited about. The official website, which is biohazardcg2.com, has been updated with the plot cast crew information and the disappointing news, all you Resident Evil Survivor fans. Has that not been put to bed yet? You're going you're gonna to mention him again? Oh, he will. He, he will live long in our hearts. But Ark Thompson appears not to be in this game, despite the clear opportunity for him to be. Shock it. horror. I know. I know. Oh, dear, but it's, it's some guy called Buddy, you know. <laughs> Never mind. The good news is there's going to be a tyrant. I've seen the back of the picture and there's a kind of tyrant with a... It looks like a, almost like a toga, a gold toga. He's wearing around his neck. But it, it looks like a T-103 or obviously a varied model of it. So that's good. And there's also the rumours of the final combination of the T-virus with the Las Plagas. Um, with the gallery photographs, which seems to suggest zombie Ganados, which is also quite exciting. If you go on the English uh, website, you can actually watch a couple of clips from the film now. Oh, really? Oh, You have to go through all the way through the trailer they've got up there, and then there'll be more clips if you click click on the more clips button at the end. Ah, okay. One of them is just Leon arguing with Hunnigan, and the other one's some kind of briefing on the liquor. As I said in previous podcasts, the liquor seems to be the, the biggie. Making a big deal out of him. Can you remind me what the release date of this film is? September 20, 24th in Europe, 25th in the US. Oh, okay, so not too long. And if you happen to be in Japan on the at the end of October, there's going to be an actual theatrical release in Shinjuku. Well, that'd be cool. In 3D. It, wow, yes, the joys of 3D. That concludes all our gaming news. Any site news? I feel so relieved you didn't ask me about Mahara Desire. <laughs> no, it's, it's so relieving. Any site news, George? Mahara Desire? <laughs> No, I just find it very boring. It's the first time I've ever kind of worked on a Resident Evil project and it's actually felt like, you know, sort of homework. You know, I've got to get out of the way. It's not a labour of love, it's just labour of boredom. Other than that, no, I've got nothing to say about really? what New Spot, I think he was pondering what format to display the translation at Project Umbrella. I've sent him all the translations and you obviously you can see them at my site, but I don't think they've made it onto Project Umbrella yet. I think New Spot's toying with you know, how to display them. Talking of, you know, you, you say you've never been bored with Resident Evil until Mahara Desire. I would say playing through, and I, I know I mention it occasionally, playing through the confidential report <sighs> games was extremely tedious. Because it's not just a case of like you can move. You move one square or you turn on the spot. And then if there's like four other enemies on the screen, they then move one square each in turn. Then you can move one. Turn-based. So turn-based, but like literal, every motion you do, then everyone else does it. So that's... See, on- only you could switch the topic of conversation from Resident Evil 6, which is three weeks away, to Confidential to... Report. <laughs> Do you want to mention Resident Evil Retribution while you're there? Well, <laughs> I will say I, I was in Southampton over the weekend and I saw Nicky, the, the poster. I know, but I, I saw the poster for it at the Odeon Cinema it's, it's coming happens. soon. Not that I really like the films that much, but like I really worried that it's going to be like, and then I woke up and everything was a dream. That's the way it seems to be going. Because obviously with the return of all the old characters, I just don't quite see how they're going to... I don't know. But... Uh, clones, actually. Is, yeah. is, is that the, the guy? I'm, I'm not kidding. They're cloned. That's how they're bringing Michelle Rodriguez's character back. I was telling somebody the other day that, again, I was doing a Google search for something. And of course, you can't Google search anything to do with Resident Evil right now and not get a bunch of retribution information sure, dropped in your sure. head. And I read a plot summary of Retribution, just what's been released so far and what's going on. And apparently, it's how they're bringing Carlos back because he, the film version of Carlos died at the end of whatever the third movie was. It's how they're bringing Rain back. There's just clones all the hell over the place. There's going to be a bad clone and a good clone. And I'm only hoping the bad clone has a goatee. And 
<laughs> I, I want to see Michelle Rodriguez just walking around with a goatee, daring people to say something about it. That would redeem the entire movie for me. Because I watched uh, whatever the fourth one was. Afterlife. Thank you, Afterlife. And the fourth movie for me, I got it for a dollar out of a vending machine. Oh, very good. And that's, oh. that's about what I would pay for it. And the entire movie is redeemed for me because at the start of the movie, Wesker kills Alice something like 20 times in rapid succession. Does, yes. Because at the end of the third movie, she winds up with an army of telekinetic super clones of herself. And naturally, she uses them to attack Umbrella because that's what you do when you have an army of telepathic super clones. And Wesker just knocks them down like 10 pins, like it's not even a thing. Dead Mia Jovovich all over the damn floor. And I guess so, I guess cloning is a major thing in this series now. But yeah, watching Wesker just go, no, and kill Alice several times. The rest of the movie is only kind of, eh. But when it starts off 20 minutes of Wesker walking in and cleaning house, you have to stand up and salute that as a fan of the series. That's what this film's franchise needed, is uh, one of the game characters walking and just going, okay, that's it, daddy's home, and just wiping out a lot of the bullshit. And I think if we talk about any more about the movies, uh, people would have switched off by now. So. <laughs> I have. You have, yeah. <laughs> so no site news, I uh, don't think. Not that I'm aware of. Newsbot's not here to update us on anything new. So on that note, we'll now move on to our main discussion of the podcast. Resident Evil Code Veronica X. Your identification number is WKD4496. Welcome to your new home. Her name is Claire Redfield. We caught her trespassing in our Paris lab facility ten days ago. So, obviously what we're going to do, we'll have a quick chat about the game and a long discussion about all the different aspects of the game and what you like, what you didn't like. How's it aged? How has it, has it improved with age? Has it got worse? Etc, etc. So a quick rundown of the game. Obviously this was announced, yeah, 1999, I think, exclusively, before 99, exclusively for the newly released Dreamcast console from Sega. This was part of the exclusivity deal that was going to only be on that. Although subsequent interviews with people from Capcom said this was actually never the case. It was always designed to be on other consoles as well, and I think things got mistranslated. I believe that to be the case. Correct me if I'm wrong. It would make sense. I'm sure I remember reading something like that, that it is printed as exclusive, but it wasn't necessarily actually always going to be exclusive. Anyway, so, um, George, I'll start with you, because it's tradition. What's your brief impression? It's, it's also traditional for you to tell me. Brief. To keep it brief, yeah. I've got questions first. What was the time difference between Code Veronica and then Code Veronica X? And when Code Veronica X came out, was it simultaneous on both PlayStation and GameCube? Dreamcast. Dreamcast. Yes, yeah, so if I remember, Code Veronica X came out in Europe anyway in about July time. July 2001, because I remember buying official PlayStation magazine. The front cover was just a picture of Claire, the face. <laughs> Another great design we get in Europe. Yeah, I think that was July time. And it definitely came out on Dreamcast at the same time. But I don't know if the X version got released in, in the UK on Dreamcast. No, I mean, just in terms of the, the time difference between Veronica and Code Veronica oh, X. It's two years then, wasn't it? Is that right? Two years, that long. Biohazard Code Veronica came out in February 2000. Code Veronica X came out March 22nd, 2001. So 13 months for the Japanese <laughs> versions. Because I'm, I mean, I'm just interested because I've not played Code Veronica other than the, the you know, the cutscenes, and I appreciate Wesker takes a far greater role in Code Veronica X. I was a little unclear about his role in, in Code Veronica. 
He gets his ass beat in Go to Veronica. It's pretty awesome. For me, this is a serious classic. I think it's um, right up there with one and two for me. They tried to do with this perhaps what they thought they should have done with Resident Evil 3, which always kind of feels a little short. For me, it's really ambitious. You have this great feeling of scale and, and of distance. It was one of the first Resident Evil games that I really had to use a strategy guide for. There are many little things in the game that really give it a personality, a gothic personality for me. You've got, you know, your first walk up to Alfred's personal residence and you've got, you know, you've got the lightning coming down. And that's one of the greatest shots for me in, in, in Resident Evil history. I just think it's unfortunate that you only get that once and, and every time you go back, you can't even get a camera shot of, of that residence. But th- yes, that, it's, that... A, it's a unique camera angle, isn't it? Kind of as you walk yeah. up, it zooms up, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah you, you don't. I mean, I appreciate you're not going to get the laughing and the, and, and the lightning, but at least just a glimpse of it again would be good. But um, yeah, things like that for me. And obviously, a, a really, I think, quite an ambitious storyline reminded me of this really nasty 1980s horror film. I can't remember what it's called. There's a guy and he pretends to be his dead sister, but he's a sculptor. And then you, you end up finding his sister, her skeleton remains in one of his, his statue sculptures. But it kind of reminded, oh, me, it reminded me of that. Was that a Tales from the Crypt episode, maybe? No, it was well before then. I think it was in the 80s. It was like a dodgy kind of made-for-TV film. I've been playing the HD version, and perhaps this shows up more. One thing that kind of struck me, one criticism perhaps, I don't know if it's fair, is obviously this has come out after Resident Evil 2, yet the actual, the detail in the environments for me are a little bland. I don't know if anyone else felt that. It may seem sort of contradicting because the whole game has great atmosphere and character, and the locations themselves are fantastic. But if you look within that kind of detail... Um, walls, buildings, surfaces. There doesn't seem to be as much details that you've got, you know, around Raccoon City in Resident Evil 2. Oh, that, they aren't. No, I just mean it, just in the game, just know some kind of further detail. It seemed a little sort of bland. I, I don't know. Batman, what, what did you think? Well, I feel the opposite. It's my least favourite of the core series. I think the gameplay is very stilted. It's not free-flowing like the first three games. I know it was developed by Next Tech. Was it a subsidiary of Sega at the time? Because they were more familiar with the Dreamcast software than Capcom. And I think that's why it plays a little differently than the first three games. I think the environments are far too bland and uninteresting. You know, we talked in the last episode about all the hidden detail in the Spencer Mansion in Remake with the paintings and the architecture and that, but I don't think there is any of that in Code Veronica. I'd agree with that, yeah. I think it's dated quite badly, and it makes me wonder if the switch to full 3D background environments came a little too soon. I mean, it would have been interesting to see what Rockford Island would have looked like had they gone down the remake route with the pre-rendered backgrounds and just some 3D environmental animations. The story was okay, introduced a few nice things like the Ashford family. T. Veronica Veriris was interesting and the background behind it with Alexia experimenting on her own father and faking a death for 15 years was good. Uh, the return of Wesker, obviously, was a major plot point that's shaped the saga ever since. I don't know, I just think One of my main gripes with it is it's just too fantastical. Like, the first three were all loosely, and I say loosely, based on real science, but Code Veronica, you know, just had one too many fantastical elements that sort of set the trend for some of the later games, like that tentacle thing that Alexia has. Never really been explained, is it? Well, that scene where, you know, you see it cover several miles in a few seconds to catch up with Steve and Claire on that snowplough was Mm. just ridiculous. But having said that, they are some good cinematics in the game, such as, you know, Alexia and Ashford uh, 
pulling the wings off that dragonfly and feeding it to the ants. And... Oh, yeah, I mean, that, yeah. You touched upon the, the fantastical elements of the game. As soon as you said that, it sprang in my mind was the scene with, with Alexia kind of coming down the stairs. Yeah, it's where she the... just spontaneously combusts. And... Yeah, do you think that that's the... Because it's the first time you've got a B.O.W. still in human form in the yeah. series, isn't it? And it's all... You've obviously got tyrants, but you can tell that, you know, they're fucked up. She still possesses her consciousness, though, doesn't she? She does, and it's the first time where you see that kind of thing, don't you? You see that kind of human element that obviously is replicated throughout the series, obviously later then with Wesker and things like that, but... But it doesn't become scary because it's just too unrealistic. Like, I know the science in Resident Evil always has been bollocks. <laughs> but with the first the first three, you could sort of lose, like, you know, the tyrant. If you were going to make some sort of human biological weapon, you know, the tyrant is probably something that most of us, you know, would have sort of loosely imagined it to be. But a woman walking downstairs, turning into concrete and spontaneously combusting, you know, it's just it's just too much. Mm. Briefly, John, what do you think of Code Veronica? Um, too much backtracking. Excellent. Because basically in that game, you do a lot of backtracking and it, it feels like it's done to sort of, uh, you know, cheaply extend the game longer than it should be, I guess. But it has the best scene in the series. Which is? The bit where Chris is climbing up the mountainside. When you start playing as Chris and he's climbing up yeah. like a mountain. What did you think of the relationship between a young Steve Burnside and Claire? Wait, sorry, sorry to interrupt, Nick. I was still curious to hear why John liked that particular scene. Because it's manly and epic. And he just happens to drop yeah. his bag full of guns. Yeah, but he keeps on, doesn't he? You know, he's like, oh, I dropped all the shit I was going to bring with me. Doesn't matter. I'm here now. I might as well just get out of it. And that sums up the spirit of Chris Redfield right there. <laughs> Resilient. What do you think of the love story? Um, It didn't really go anywhere, really, did it? It was a bit unnecessary in the end game because Steve died and he's become irrelevant. Thomas, what would you say briefly about the... Uh, about briefly. Strap in, this ain't going to be brief. I was really excited about it at the time because it came at a really significant period. Because it was, I'd been in my first apartment after moving out of my parents' house for about a week. And then I bought a Dreamcast and I was sitting there you know, convulsively checking the mail every day, waiting for my copy of Code Veronica to get there from Amazon. And reading everything which had something to do with it and just really behaving like a huge embarrassing fan. And I played the hell out of it when it finally got there. And Claire is probably my favorite character in the series, so I've got a certain amount of bias and affection for the game. But looking back on it from, you know, 12 years out, it is very, very much a Dreamcast game. And they threw pretty much everything they could think of into it. There are a lot of games like it on the system, like the comparison I always kind of want to make is D2, which not a lot of people have played. I don't know if any of you have. It's one of the other survival horror games on the Dreamcast, and it's never been ported to anything else. And it's like a survival horror game and a hunting simulator and a survival and just It's this really strange game with a lot of bizarre symbolism and involves a lot of running around after a plane crash. But with Code Veronica, like Batman said, the environments are kind of dull, but it's because they're the first ones in the series that actually scrolled with you. They weren't from a fixed perspective, so naturally they are a little bit dull because it's a very much a first-generation product. Because uh, when it came out in February of 2000, that's only like five months after the Dreamcast itself launched. So it was very much an early product of the system. And at the time, it was really impressive because I mean, I remember being really blown away by the character animation because Claire had a expressive face and the lip syncing was actually a present B relatively accurate. <laughs> and uh, I should have nice us. I can neither confirm nor deny my thoughts concerning the niceness of Claire Redfield's ass. 
and basically Claire's game I always thought was much much better than basically I think the game is really pretty good right up until Chris enters the scene at that point they start throwing everything at the wall and I think it's to the general detriment of the thing because one of the things that Code Veronica very much plays up on early on is the fact that Claire isn't the experienced one that she's a relatively ordinary 19 year old girl who's basically doing the best she can and I thought that was relatively well conveyed but then Chris shows up and the entire thing turns into Tentacle Shooter 2000. And basically that is when I start falling off that train in a big hurry. I never enjoyed yeah. the Antarctica levels as much as, as the early ones in Rockfall. No, no, I think that... Although I do, I do like how... Uh, I honestly think Game of Oblivion is a much superior retelling of the same thing just in terms of Claire's character and making Alfred a generally threatening antagonist as opposed to kind of a really advanced high-level Dawn of the Dead shout-out. Because I thought it was really kind of funny at the time that they had made the bold choice of making an antagonist, a genuine antagonist who is there like all the way through Claire's portion of the game, who is not really threatening at any point in time aside from the fact that he pushes the plot forward. Because, you know, there's that one point where he's shooting at you and it's really easy to dodge everything, even though he's got a high-powered rifle from what looks like about 20 feet away. Yeah. Yeah. There are blind people who would be able to shoot you at that range with that gun. And, uh, you know, but Alfred turned into a running gag. And I thought that was kind of funny at the time. But the the further I get away from it, the more it's kind of like, what the hell were you thinking, guys? And Game of Oblivion retells it really well, where he's actually, he's still crazy, but he's crazy in a very effective way. Welcome, Claire. Consider the area you are in a special playground I have prepared just for you. Please try and keep me amused, and do not disappoint me by dying too soon. I so want to enjoy this. Okay, well, we'll move on quickly. That covers that. We've touched upon the Dreamcast console itself and how it was a you know first-generation game on the Dreamcast. So the question really, was it too early for Resident Evil to go 3D? And an interesting point is the fact that even following the release of Code Veronica, both remake and zero for the majority of the game stayed pre-rendered does that illustrate to us that the the 3d co veronica was a failing or were they just biding their time what's your thoughts on that well it wasn't a failing because i mean it did work and the camera did follow you about which is what a lot of people wanted because the pre-rendered camera angles they've always had the critics and i think if you go back to 2000 2001 when this came out with the jump in technology with a new console, I think if it stuck with pre-rendered backgrounds, as beautiful as they would have been, I think it would have got quite a lot of criticism. Mm. I think they got away with it with Remake, because it was a remake. I agree with you, Batman, in the sense that it, it's got to be one of the worst dated games. And I think if Capcom ever sat around and said, right, we're going to remake one of the old games, it'd have to be Code Veronica that gets the remake over Resident Evil 2 and 3, in my eyes. Just because it... Excuse me, do with it really to make all the backgrounds more, you know, bring it up to date. Whereas two and three can get away with it just through the, the fact that it's pre-rendered. Uh, you've got a you know, hell of a lot of detail on the PlayStation, but obviously with Code Veronica, you said it's a bit bland. You know, the prison in particular, I thought was a bit dull. Yeah, I don't mean to sound negative. I really like the game, and we were discussing before the podcast that the sheer length of the game in particular is a huge game, easily longer than 
Resident Evil 3, which again was touched upon. A lot of backtracking, though. I think that yeah. makes it seem longer than what it is. Yeah, because you know, will you pick up the doorknob? You know, will you take it back to that door? You know, you know, here's the serum. Go back to the all the way back to the prison. Not yeah, the serum. But all- him. Off the top of my head, the two major instances of backtracking in the game, one is a punishment for screwing up by getting poisoned during the Nosferatu fight, and is completely optional even in the original version. You just stay the hell away from Nosferatu and you'll be fine. And the second one you just need to do to get the good ending. You actually can skip it completely and still get all the way through the game. If you don't do either of those, the game gets cut in. Because if you're doing a speedrun to get the infinite rocket launcher, you can not do either of those. So if I think that backtrack, you know, that much backtracking is a completely valid point, but it's also important to note that both of them are not something you have to do to get all the way through the game. George, what did you think? Did you think that looking back on it now, it, it should have been pre-rendered, or do you think it was, you know, it's still bold and the, the correct decision to go for a kind of 3D? Yeah, I, I think it was probably obviously in the minds of the developers that they needed to move on. I, you know, I take the point that this was a new console and, and to have stuck with pre-rendered, perhaps they would have, you know, got a lot of criticism that you know, being stuck in the past, and then they, they've got to move forward. I, you know, I take the criticisms that people have made. I think they're legitimate. I think people are being a little harsh. When I played the game, um, it would have been at least a year or two after it had already come out. I played the port on the GameCube at a time when it was very, very difficult to get in. I actually had to drive from Bristol to another city in Bath to uh, to get a copy. And yeah, so, for, for all our listeners, there, there's a city Bath. You didn't drive in his Bath <laughs> to, to get. Oh, okay. <laughs> Altogether, they didn't have any in any of the shops here. Yeah, so I, I went on this long-distance drive to get a copy, and um, I think it was the right decision. You talk about the prison being bland. I don't actually find the structures themselves and the character that comes with them bland. It's just, you know, you've got, there's obviously no detail in, in the brick walls. There's no detail in, in the four walls of that structure. But the actual structures themselves, I think, for me, they still stand up as having real character. And... Uh, I mean, what interests me is that you've got various different types of zombies. At the, the beginning, you've got, I'm not sure if it's the teeth of the spread of the Veronica virus with the rain coming down, but you've got, you know, these zombies rising from graves that were initially prisoners on, on the island. But, you know, there's that question mark, are, are they being reanimated from corpses into zombies from this virus? Um, they buried as zombies and coming up through the ground. Exactly, yeah. That was a classic moment, you know, when you first play it. I like the fact that it starts and you can't see a thing. You haven't got a clue what you're doing. And then you switch the light on. That's quite a nice little bit. And then when you kind of come out the stairs, you get the heartbeat moments on the controller, which is quite nice. And then the zombies coming up through the ground. That is the first time you've kind of got zombies coming out of the grave. No one mentioned actually the cinematic at the beginning. For me, one of the greatest opening scenes in, in video game history. All right, Paul Anderson. We're not going to have any more of that. I've, I've got to disagree with you completely there, George. Really? Well, with the, the helicopter panning... So if you were Oswell Spencer, you'd order an attack helicopter to come <laughs> along and, and decimate your own building. See, I think that's... For that, one see, girl. Because <laughs> I think that's definitely, for John, that's what... I see your point, you know, it's the fantastical element that, that you didn't like. And I think, for me, it wasn't too ridiculous in the sense that I suppose I kind of suspended belief for a second and perhaps wasn't judging it, you, you know, officially in a, in a canon sense. Because, um, yeah, I take your point. And for me, it was just a, a great piece of action and really dramatically opened the game. But I take your point. <laughs> if I ever find myself in a position where I'm, you know, drinking with Shinji Mikami or something and I get the opportunity to ask him about the series and get a straight answer about a couple of things, just like, what the fuck did Claire do in that building? that they were after her with the attack helicopter. They were blowing away an entire floor of the building. (laughs) 
with a minigun. And yeah. there was piles of explosives. Just yeah, why were they room. standing? Why, why, were <laughs> yeah. they, why were they all down there in the first place, that many just concentrated yeah. in one area and just standing in front of all those, those canisters? Yeah. All right, bro, she's heading into the propane storage room. We'll intercept her there. This cannot possibly go poorly for us. Let's go. It's not as if she can drop to the floor faster than a blooming metal gun, catch it, and fire. Well, she's actually a member of the uh, fraternity, if you've seen Wanted. It's a very, very subtle. Oh, uh, yeah, that explains it. Yeah, That explains so, it all. So subtle, in fact, that it's actually, what, nine years before the comic came out, let alone the movie. I'm with George. I do like the beginning. I think it's quite exciting. Well, that's no surprise, because you <laughs> like the films. <laughs> oh, I don't know. You know I, I think George has got a point. It is it's a really good, almost actually a slight anti-climax in that sense, because all that action, and then you're suddenly in a quiet little cell. It's very odd, isn't it? Because you're expecting, this is Paris. Oh, my God, we're finally going to go to go to the, the European headquarters. This is what it's been leading to, and then that's kind of taken away from you at the last minute. And in a my world favorite... full of characters who've had like special forces training and seven different careers by the time they're like 18 years old. In a world full of industrial spies and it's the 19-year-old college girl who manages to infiltrate Umbrella's main headquarters. It's ridiculous. One of my favorite stupid little facts about the series was always, up until RE4 came out, was in terms of sheer body count of all of the characters who have been playable in the series, the person who's killed the most ordinary human beings is, was Claire. With that the, gas uh, explosion. With, the gas- <laughs> with, that, with that gas explosion. And after that, it's like her with what looked like about 20 guys, and then it was Jill with maybe one in the one of the endings, which turned out to be not canon. And uh, it, it amused me on a base level. I don't really have anything better to say about it. Just like, <laughs> apparently Claire is the most dangerous character in the series. Like, Okay, moving on to Co-Veronica X, we've talked about the differences. Unfortunately, no one's actually, I don't think, got the original. I do. You do? You do, right? You'll be able to do a, a quick compare and contrast? Yeah, I, ha- I still have my old Dreamcast disc, not with me, but I've got it around here somewhere. Basically, in the original game, Wesker doesn't show up at all until Chris's game. The first time you see Wesker in the original Code Veronica is in that uh, cutscene in Chris's game where he's watching Chris on a security monitor from the seaport. Okay. Right when he releases the hunters. Yep. The sequence from Code Veronica X where he shows up to stomp on Claire's neck isn't in the game. The biggest difference from stuff that is actually in both series is uh, it's one of the reasons why I can't take Wesker seriously. A lot of people are big fans of his, but in the original Code Veronica scene where Alexia comes down the stairs and uh, Wesker comes in the room and says, give me the virus. She walks up to him faster than he can track and decks him, punches him across the room. He goes flying over backwards. He does a backward somersault in midair, gets up like he's kind of punch drunk and groggy. The fight is much more one-sided in Alexia's favor in the original. In Code Veronica X, there's the bit where they're, they kind of look like they're evenly matched and then Wesker runs away. And of course, the uh, big fist fight between Chris and Wesker at the end where the countdown to the subnuclear detonation of the entire Antarctic ice shelf mysteriously pauses so they can have their uh, fist fight. <laughs> the big change of obviously Steve Burnside's hair. Oh, right. Yeah, because that had to happen. It had to, because he looked too much like DiCaprio. Yeah, I, I like to think that was exactly why Capcom, even they were sick of those friggin' jokes. And if I can just add the reason I thought Code Veronica X was so much more important than the original version, if you have a look at Chris's photograph, in Code Veronica X, he's actually got a few strands of hair coming down from his fringe. He's having a bad hair day in Code uh, Veronica X. It's literally oh. two strands. It makes you wonder why they're bothered. <laughs> I did not know that. That's amazing. So 
what does everyone think about the changes? And you know, obviously, I think most people are aware of the you know the extended fight scene, and I think we've already touched upon the fact that this was building up to be Wesker. They've just obviously decided they want to bring him back, and they're going to make him the key focal point, uh, the the key villain of the series. What does everyone think the way it was brought about? In the original, it would have been a much bigger moment of impact, except for the fact he's on the fucking title screen. So that didn't work out for them. Oh, is he? Oh, oh, on the Dreamcast version, he's still on the title screen. Oh, yeah. Right there, big as life. I guess it's for people who'd never played any other game in the series. Like, who's this guy? Oh, he's that guy from with sunglasses on the title screen. Cool. There was no way I could afford a Dreamcast, so I was never going to get this game. But I remember my friend saying, oh, they brought Wesker back. And I thought, well, how the bloody hell have they done that? Yeah. yeah. So that's why I wanted to play it. <laughs> and I played it, and it just doesn't tell you. Yeah, that's uh, true. That's the point. It doesn't say. I remember reading um, PlayStation Max magazine, and uh, they were doing a quick scoop on Resident Evil 3 was going to be coming out on PlayStation 1. And there's a little bit on Code Veronica, and they're very pro PlayStation. It goes, easily the best game on this overhyped Sega machine. Zombies like we've never dreamed before uh, on PlayStation. But it brings back old characters like Chris Redfield, Claire Redfield, and Albert, isn't he dead, Wesker. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, he's bloody dead, I really yeah. But as you said, John, you never find out how he's back. Was the first explanation in Wesker's report? Was that the first time? It was, it? yeah, as far as I was aware. I know, available with limited edition, wasn't that with Code Veronica? Yeah, if you pre ordered. With Code Veronica X for the fifth anniversary <laughs> oh, of his. But, yeah. but when the original game came out, you didn't have a clue because Wesker isn't he only in two scenes? He sends the hunters um, after Chris, then he confronts Chris in the lab. No, then when yeah. he runs. When he runs away from Alexia in the mansion hall replica, you never see him again. You only know that he's in the Antarctic lab with you at all when one of the sweeper devices shows up. Chris looks up and goes, oh shit, Wesker's here. And then Wesker doesn't show up again until the, the Alexia showdown. So yeah, clearly by the time Remake was very much in development as well as Zero, they decided, no, we need to make Wesker a bit more prominent. Let's make him the virus collector. I'd be interested to know when exactly they thought about bringing him back, because in the Japanese guidebook for Code Veronica, there's concept art for Wesker in his HCF uniform dated yes. June 1998, so that was probably before they even started work on Nemesis. Yeah, I just yeah. had a message from Welsh to remind us of that, so well done, Batman. So yeah, perhaps there always was the plan to bring him back, maybe not necessarily in, in Code Veronica, but maybe for, as you said, Nemesis. But the weird thing about Wesker is if you're like a, a purist and you stick to the main numbered games and you don't play the spin-offs, if you have the original Code Veronica rather than Code Veronica X, if you have the original Resident Evil 4 rather than the Wii edition, yeah. you know, Wesker's hardly in the series at all. That's you true, because in Resident Evil 4 he's not there at all, but a fleeting mention by... And even, Resident, even when Resident Evil 5 came out, he didn't turn up till chapter 5-3, you know, three quarters of the way through the game. That's a good point. Yeah. So it's, it's only really if you've bought Code Veronica X, Resident Evil 4 Special Edition, and played Umbrella Chronicles that he actually makes, you know, a significant presence in the series. That's an excellent point. Because, <laughs> yeah, I've got in Resident Evil 4, he's, he's just in the um, Simon Ada, isn't he? Yeah. I don't know. I kind of got a kick out of how he plays in the Resident Evil 4, though, when you sit down and look at it. Because he's really the only reason Resident Evil 4 happens at all. Yeah. Because Sadler's entire plan is actively idiotic so he's just like hey krauser go make what settler wants to do possible i want his stuff mm. and if you feel like it stop him and uh, i thought that was kind of a clever use of wesker so do you think it's a good thing or bad thing that they brought him back oh shit um i've been trying to figure out why they did it for a long time and it's one of, it's another one of those questions i'd like to ask the developers i don't really think of it it happened 
I'm not a big fan of the character. I don't really see much of the appeal because he, you know, I, I, I really liked fighting him. He's a good villain in five. But I like the whole thing in five where they make it very clear from the outskirts that you do not beat this guy in a straight fight. It's just not happening. So they've used him very effectively. But I think at the point that he reenters the series, the series itself is still so new and largely unexplored that I don't really have an opinion about good idea versus bad idea. Just you know, it, it's there. It's like questioning the sky. You know? mm. George, what did you think about bringing him back? I imagine it must have been then, obviously, with Code Runner Kretz, because I can remember the moment I was aware that this guy that had been impaled on a tyrant in the first game had been brought back. And I can actually generally remember feeling just this awful feeling that this this series that, that I loved, you know, was really starting to lose its integrity. and Or perhaps that I was taking it a bit too seriously. Um, <laughs> because I, I was generally, generally disappointed just from the point of view, before I even decided, you know, was it a, a good thing? As a character, he enriches, I think, the, the installments that he's in. But just in terms of the integrity of the story, I, I just thought it was absolutely, it was just appalling. It was just beyond ridiculous, this suggestion that, that you know, his ex, oh, it was in Wesker's report, you know, his explanation that this, this had been a purposeful plan from the beginning. It was just, <laughs> it, it was just beyond childish. It was just stupidity beyond belief. So again, maybe perhaps take it too seriously, but almost felt like, you know, my intelligence was just being insulted by the developers. Yeah, I, re- I remember having the, exactly the same re- reaction to that, that, yes, me being killed by the tyrant was all part of my, what is this, the, the amazing triumph of Got No Lungs Boy? That was part of your plan? What, mm. What's wrong with you? What do you think, Batman? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Wesker was my favorite character from the first game, and this was pre-remake before they decided to make him, you know, a 20-year veteran tree free searcher of Umbrella. But yeah, I mean, I can't really understand why they did it, because he wasn't, in the first game, before Remake, he was just sort of a double agent working for Umbrella who decided the tyrant could make him a lot of money. Mm. Um, so I, I, I can't really understand why they brought him back when they could have created a new character working for Umbrella's rivals who then could have been built up from Code Veronica onwards as the main villain. But having said that, I do like what they've done with the character since I, I like his backstory from Wesker's report too, even though it took a while to get used to, you know, 18-year-old chief researcher. Okay. I liked his cameo in Resident Evil Zero, and I do like his relationship with Ada in Resident Evil 4. And personally, I thought a lot of people say in Resident Evil 5 he had nowhere else left to go other than his world domination plan, but I think he could have had one more game left in him. I'm sort of on the fence with it. It's a shame he's not almost more prevalent perhaps in Dark Side Chronicles. They could have bunged him in that. I don't understand the argument when everyone says, oh, Wesker, he's in every single one. I'm sick of him because he's not. You know, he's, in, he's mentioned in a lot of background files, obviously, and, you know, he does have a role behind the scenes in most games, but he's hardly, he's hardly in the series, really, if you think about it. Mm. <laughs> Long time no see, Chris. Wesker? He's still alive? <laughs> what are you doing here? I came for Alexia. Who? An organization hired me to capture her. Wait! You attacked the island! And my sister! So now I've sold my soul to a new organization. 
now die. Here's a little secret, Chris. I figured out that your sister is now in the Antarctic with Alexia. It's too bad you won't be seeing her again. <laughs> Alexia? We can move on to the other characters. Um, this obviously introduced a plethora of new characters, and in particular the Ashford clan. And although there's only kind of like three Ashfords in the game, that being Nosferatu as well, just that that, that painting puzzle showed how many Ashfords there are, or were, all of which were really important with the development of the Umbrella Corporation, of course, with Ed- Edward Ashford, who's been known for some time. You know, not just talking about you know the, those pa- characters, obviously, who we don't know anything about. What did everyone think of Steve, you know? Steve. Yeah, Claire, help me. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah if, I mean, if you can get past his voice, which that in itself is quite an obstacle, but if you can, I mean, he comes with an, in, you know, quite, uh, in keeping with a lot of elements in this game, quite a, a dramatic and, and serious backstory. But you what know, about I, the love story? I mean, was that, I mean, you don't... What bl- love story? You know, yeah. You don't blame the guy. He's 17, isn't he? Yeah. She's 19. You're going to try and hit on that, you know, in that kind of situation. I mean, if anything, if it wasn't done too cheesy and, and you yeah, know, it was done very cheesily, um, aside from that, it, it was in keeping with his character. If anything, if that wasn't in there, you could it could almost be a criticism that, that he was only a one-dimensional character because, yeah, I think, I think Neptune's right. It, it was in keeping with who he was. And, you know, and if you look at, the you know, where he was coming from with the, the family members that he'd lost, you know, being incarcerated and, and then suddenly he's going around with this, you know, this fit, you know, athletic female, then, you know, good luck. A bit of perhaps light relief, you know. You've got, I mean, fantastic, but you've got, I don't know how they are, how old the twins are in that film, eleven, twelve, early teens. But you know, you've got child animal torture. Yeah, I mean, I thought that Alfrexia, if you like Alfred and Alexia, I thought they were they were interesting characters, and you kind of you actually feel sorry. I did anyway for Alfred in the end because he was almost like a. Not nobody, but he, he was just there just to protect Alexia. He, he was... Uh, yeah, I mean, he had a, his inferiority complex. He did, and, like, yeah, he was a total nut. But obviously when you found out that when Alexia wasn't alive or, you know, wasn't around and, you know, he was just dressing up as a... And then he has that moment in the mirror, doesn't he, where he realises that he's dressing up, that kind of thing. They expanded on that quite nicely with Dark Side Chronicles with the audio files where um, they created a fictional character called Tanya and Alfred began to believe that Alexia really was living with him and Rockfort and the person in cryogenic tube in Antarctica was this person called Tanya. Oh, I missed that. I missed that. It's in the audio files in Darkside Chronicles. A lot of people, it's difficult to make sense of it at first, but it's basically a fictional character that Alfred created to make himself believe that Alexia really is living with him on the island. Is Tanya... He's made up creation to explain the cryogenic system. Yeah, yeah. he goes to visit her every year and he says something like, we're celebrating your, because I think Alexia was 12 or 13 when she went into stasis, so they go down and say, oh, Tanya, we're here to celebrate your 12th birthday for the 13th year or something like that. Oh, that's interesting. But yeah, as I said, you know, I, I myself felt, Obviously, when he, when he got shot eventually, he just fell down the ravine and, and then obviously died in front of Alexia. There was some sympathy with him because you thought, you know, you, you are a very, very strange individual. But 
he was bordering on the sympathetic. Not quite. You know, he was up there with the nuts. But perhaps I don't know. There may be suggestions that he wasn't quite as evil, or certainly as ruthless as Alexia. He wasn't. No, but then he he was in control of Rockfort, and he and he was experimenting, creating the Bandersnatch. You know, there, there's a lot from the files of the prisoners in particular. There's a lot of shit going on. There's something in the Code Veronica Kaya Shinso guidebook as well that says the reason he dresses up as a soldier and he's got a high interest in all things military is because Alexia kept calling him her soldier aunt. Ah. But I didn't actually like Alexia's character much because I wasn't sure it related particularly well to that of a what, 13-year-old child. But she was a genius, well, I suppose. Cause that's just because you're a genius doesn't mean you, you have plans to... That's it. This world is inferior. I... I Essentially, you know, she's still got the same brain as she had when she decided to cryogenically freeze herself. If she was a genius, obviously fascinated with the Veronica virus, you could almost understand what she did to her dad. But I didn't quite get why that's it, you know. She, it just didn't fit where someone like Sadler, you could almost almost understand it. She's not an ordinarily 13-year-old girl because, you know, the genius thing, yeah, there's that because everybody in this series is a genius of one kind or another. But she's a queen ant. That's the entire... There's actually a lot of really kind of quiet symbolism in the entire ant-dragonfly thing. In sure, America. sure. And the thing about uh, Alexi's entire personality is, I am on this planet to rule it. Everyone I see is either working for me or is somebody I can play with. Yeah, and I think the fact that that's coming from a little girl as well almost makes it even more sinister, rather yeah. than this, this big you know, six-foot male megalomania. It even makes her whole doll thing, because in the uh, mansion in Rockfort make more sense because when you play with a doll, you are inherently the doll's manipulator. You make its decisions for it. It's exactly the kind of thing that a girl with a control streak like that would be playing with. You'd be a doll collector. I didn't think of that. That's a good point. I did enjoy that. That that was the creepiest moment when you get to the private residence. Oh, and you just see that huge... And the great thing about that, because I was actually playing it and my son was watching... And he's sort of asking, what is that? Because as you come around the stairs on each, um, you know, as you're making each circuit around this, this stairway, you can't actually quite make up what it is. I mean, you kind of know what it is, but the real kind of reveal, the detail in, in the doll's face, you don't actually see to you right at the top. There's some other minor characters like Rodrigo, but, you know. He was interesting enough. Yeah. He was the character's death I probably felt the most in the game. I would agree, yeah. Yeah, certainly more than Steve's. Well, I thought Steve was really annoying at first, but the further you get into the game, the better Steve got. I thought his voice actor wasn't great early on, but I thought he rocked the death scene, the original version. I did like the death scene. Yeah, yeah, that that worked very well. But what's interesting is, you know, it's a game about siblings, you know, with Chris and Claire and Alfred and Alexia, and Steve's on his own, and he's... Mm -hmm very very untrustworthy about people so it's no surprise that he actually died was anyone sort of a little bit surprised that he died just specifically relating to the injury that he got because i just remember at the time he kind of just gets slammed doesn't he i don't know if i missed something but i never kind of really got why that was such a fatal injury because the they've repeatedly demonstrated that the tentacles in that game can punch straight through reinforced concrete and it punched him straight in the midsection that would rupture every one of your internal organs Yes, yeah, good point. yeah, good point. I mean, I think this has certainly been discussed in the thread at PU is after that injury, his mutations disappearing and he kind of reverts back into his original human state. And that's certainly the only evidence that I think we've ever seen of that actually being a process that can occur. I'm not sure if that was specifically Veronica virus or... I think it was just sort of make his final scene with Claire a bit more touching because I don't think it would have been as effective if he still looked like a fat lizard. <laughs> that would have been the best final scene ever, though. Steve, <laughs> Steve, are you okay? <laughs> 
but then uh, subtitles popping up from the kind of <laughs> sorry, from the viral point of view because it's a different virus to that old. When it's the one that... is the T Alexia, wasn't it? So is that it's... potentially the difference between the T Veronica with Nosferatu? He can't turn back into Alexander Ashford. He got the dose that had been with that kind of had the symbiotic relationship with Alexia. And, yes, you know, yes, exactly. Pro- yeah. Proving her kind of that's her her theory behind the whole idea of you know going in a cryogenic sleep. So he's got he has got that version. So the suggestion I suppose would at least be that that's a more stable virus and has far more chance of bonding successfully w- with its host without you know mutating him you know to a disadvantaged state. But there's still no kind of theory. Yeah, there's no real theory of virology um, specific to T. Veronica as to why you know, he reverted. Because, I mean, is there a suggestion, there's never a suggestion that Alexia can do this. I know it specifically actually, says... Actually, I just had a thought that you might be onto something there. So the only sample that is of T. Veronica that exists in the entire base by the end of the game, suggesting that Alexia destroyed it all, if there was any there in the first place, is in Steve. Yeah. So she would have had to have infected him specifically with her strain. Yeah. And he only reverts to a human form after she's decided that he has to go, after he attacks her. So if you assume that she still has enough control of the virus to go, okay, I'm going to revert you back to a human so you can actually die from that injury, you fucker, then that actually makes the whole thing make a little bit more sense. She's got that controlling ability herself. Yeah. If she can just go, yeah, you were a mutant a second ago, but fuck that, you need to go. You're dead. Yeah, that's a good theory, actually. Mm, I like it. But you could tell with the new strain virus that he was able to keep a bit of his intelligence because while he's a monster, he does recognize Claire and he does manage to stop him himself from swinging the axe. Whereas if he'd had the original strain, which yeah. Alexander had, it would have eroded his brain cells completely, and he mm. would have lost all semblance. Well, we yeah. don't know how fast it happened with Alexander either. We know he gets infected, and he goes pretty full to Looney right away, but we only see him in-game after he's been down there mutating for 13 years, however long it's been. And uh, Steve has been infected in-game for maybe 10 hours. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, think there's, I think they're significantly different viruses, aren't they, in the sense that one... Has, has had that um, sort of you know stasis for 15 years. Well, that uh, that brings us swiftly on to the the other BOWs. We talked uh, about Steve there and Monster Steve, as I think he's affectionately known. We have a lot of zombie types actually. This has got to be one of the game's different types of zombie because you obviously get the graveyard zombie, flaming zombies, flaming zombies, prison That's guard my zombies. Then you get the Wesker zombies, don't you? The um the ones. <laughs> The ones they're known as Wesker subordinate zombies, and they have grenades stuck to them, which are quite handy. The ones with the eyes, because I really love that effect with the red eyes. I found out later on someone suggested that that wasn't their eyes; they, that they're wearing some goggles or something. Night vision. Night. Ah, oh, that's it. Yeah. You also had them ones in the Antarctic as well, with the parasites in their backs. Oh yeah, yeah, that pissed me off. That was one seriously, because I don't, I don't like to kill them, so I can't waste my, I can't be asked wasting my ammo. But I mean that moment, the mo- number of times you said, oh, "Right, so annoying." And on comes the moth, and then it just decides to shit on your back, yeah. and then you're like, "You got to wait, only wait, wait for it to kind of come out, stamp on it, and you go, oh, I'll go and get some blue herbs. Where are the blue herbs? Oh, that's right, the moths. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh my god, that pissed me off. Anyway. One thing I did like though was the uh, the doctor zombie in the prison. That was awesome. That moment. That, yeah, yeah, that was really good munching away on him. You even get the classic bit where the body bag moves as you walk past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I actually enjoyed all that, because that, that was got really gothic, didn't it, underneath the, the hospital, because you had all those weird... Oh, the tortured thing. Yeah. I mean, there's some really dark, 
you know, like I say, whilst the detail in the detail is quite bland, but, you know, if you don't look that far, it's some, some great iconography and some, you know, real sinister, nasty environments. Mm. So, so we had, obviously, we had the zombie dogs come back. Um, we had... Bats. Is it the bats. first time we ever had... Is that the first time we've ever had bats? In, yeah, uh, bats replaced yeah. the crows, and you could defeat them by putting your lighter up. But I think the real kind of, the real signature new B.O.W. for this, obviously, the Bandersnatch. Yes, an extension on the Tyrant program. I liked the Bandersnatch a lot more before I saw Return of the Living Dead Part 3. Oh, I've not seen that. <laughs> you know? um, one of the things that, I mean, no, not a lot of people have seen it because the Return of the Living Dead series is kind of like the bastard stepchild of yeah. the Night of the Living Dead series. Plus, Night of the Living Dead 3 is the comedy version, which... Oh is just a weird movie all the way through. It's about this kid whose girlfriend gets infected with a zombie virus, but she's able to maintain a bunch of her control by hurting herself. So there's this sequence where she sneaks off to a utility closet and just starts jamming sharp things into herself. Nice. And But she's able to you know keep relatively sane doing that. But the thing is, early in the movie, there's a sequence where guy sneaks into a top secret military installation where they're working with the zombie gas and that sequence early in code veronica where claire is being where you walk up the stairs in the military training facility and there's a guy in a hazard suit on the other side of a window oh, yeah, yeah. And it's the first time you see the bandersnatch that entire sequence from the moment you walk into the room and the cutscene starts is almost scene for scene from return of the living dead part three up to and including the bandersnatch design Oh, brilliant. I'll have to watch that. Yeah, YouTube. I'll, I'll warn you right now, it's a silly, silly fucking movie. But you've got the kind of the Bandersnatch itself was an attempt, it seems, to make a cheaper version of the Mr. X Tyrant 103. Um, I don't know if they ever, use, you know, it's never alluded to if they used Tyrant clones or at least the, you know, the, the clones they made on Sheena. Obviously, obviously they're never going to relate Survivor that much. It's it not... was meant to be more, I think the, the expanding arms thing, it was meant to be like a more practical, agile tyrant rather than like you walk in Terminator that the T-103 was. Yeah. I think that's why, I think it says in the archives, it's it's had no real attempt to make it look like a human, you know, so it can't blend in like a T-103 could. Right, okay. They, yeah, they were cool. I, I liked a lot of the cutscenes of the Bandersnatch. They got they got a lot of cutscene time with like Steve bursting through the windows, didn't he? And, and taking... you also got one kind of bursting through a window itself, you know. Oh yeah, of... that one, yeah. Taking him out with the gold lugers. It was pretty cool when you were walking up the stairs to the Ashford Manor as well, and they always lapped onto the walls and just pulled themselves yeah, yeah, yeah. right up to get you. That was cool. They chase you. If you just try to dodge around them and get up to the top so you can go into the mansion and just skip the fight entirely, they'll just jump over the railing at you. Yeah. They made a funny noise. They're kind of, ooh. Yeah. At least like taking them out with the, uh, with the bow gun, but with the explosive dart. So he seems to be quite susceptible to that. That's quite good. I, I don't know if it's purposeful, but they kind of have a, a more skeletal feature than the tyrants. They're their face. Their faces are very the, skeletal. Yes, they are, aren't they? Despite having a kind of gooey exterior. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of sort of this blubber that kind of wobbles, doesn't it? It moves. It's weird. The BOW I thought that didn't particularly work well has to be the, the albinoid. Um, w- <laughs> oh, it's cute. Well, the the albino's fine, whatever you know, you know, swimming tadpoles. But the albinoid, I mean, it's a salamander for a start. Is a an, a very odd choice, yeah. you know, for a for a base BOW. You, you know, they'd done the lurkers back in the seventies or whenever it was, uh, and you know, amphibian based BOWs aren't particularly successful. So to try and do another one, and then then to make it not the um axicotal axicotal. Alox, Aloxial, which is the pink salamander. 
the only pink salamander in the world, but say no, it's a native salamander to Rockford Island. Seemed a bit pointless. You've got a salamander right there. You've got some T virus. You're feeling frisky. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, you know, but you know, as far as I'm aware, I don't think salamanders can give off an electrical current. But they actually had a proper battle strategy for it, didn't they? I think the whole point of it was because it grew so quickly, they would send them into like an enemy base while they were still small, and because they grow so fast, they'd grow. Oh, okay. Slip into the enemy base undetected uh, and then grow a bit like an alien would and then kill them all. No, just moving on to something else. Um, I like the fact that they dealt with the subject. I'm pretty sure it's the first time you had an emotional attachment to a zombie. So you've got Steve realising that the incoming zombie is his father. You've got that obviously in Resident Evil Zero with Rebecca on the train with one of our stars members, I can't remember which one, Edward? Edward, Edward, yeah. yeah. But um, I think it's the first time after one, two and three that we've actually dealt with you know, this, this emotional attachment that this is a recognisable zombie, a member of your family, and, you know, what are you going to do? And it's interesting, obviously, that Steve only then actually kills it when it turns off him. He was actually going to let him, let his father, you know, kill him, but it's when it turns on Claire that, he, you know, just, like, he comes out of his... Um... That's really a big moment for Steve. It's where he stops being that incredible pain in the ass who's fallen... I mean, he's still an incredible pain in the ass for the rest of the game, but he... Uh... It's really the moment that he humanizes him and go, oh, you're 17 and that's what happened. Okay, a lot of this makes more sense now. Yeah. You're, you're still a pain in the ass, but you're understandably so. What did everyone think of, like, that? because they were, obviously you had the connections back to the original games with Chris being directly there, but you had the hunk, the, the little hunk connection to the, the prison and, and the fact that this is a whole training facility where all the paramilitary troops go and they fight off against the tyrant, um, you know, the T-078 and the gulp worm and did you feel that came across well, or was translated well into the game? From the file I read, it it felt slightly shoehorned in. He was just, you know, we we need a courier, let's make it hung. Um, but I certainly, I mean, I enjoyed the fact that they were trying to, you know, insert this kind of mysterious character in, into a further game. But um, they didn't really further on that. I did. I, I kind of wanted a bit more for that kind of to have felt established. Because other than that, just on that file alone, it did feel a little odd. Well, there's a right way and a wrong way to do that kind of thing, because Hunk is very much the Dark Horse character of the series. And to refer to him occasionally, you know, that's cool. And putting him in a file as an occasional reference, that's pretty much the right way and how to do that. You know, just leave him wanting more, let him know that you haven't forgotten he's in the series. Mm -hmm. As opposed to something like Pyramid Head, how they've incredibly mishandled that guy in every game after Silent Hill 2. Where they just like, have you played Silent Hill Homecoming, for example? Um, I'm I've got it and I'm stuck on it because I've run out of ammo. <laughs> yeah, that'll happen. But there's there's basically this scene of relatively quickly into the game where Pyramid Head like basically he dances out in a top hat and cane just for the sake of being Pyramid Head and then he goes off screen again. That's how you not do that kind of. You thing. get sliced, don't you? At the beginning, you get sliced in the hospital, don't you? And then you wake up. Yeah. That's right at the beginning. That's Pyramid Head. That's a scene directly out of the movie, isn't it? Yeah. Pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'm just using that as an example sure. of how you've got a Dark Horse character, you want the fans to know that you haven't forgotten he's there. Putting him in a file is a good example of how to leave him wanting more. I thought it was just kind of a nice little shout-out as opposed to... Yeah, uh, I, the Courier service did like how he questioned, why am I transporting a tyrant? Um, <laughs> you know, it, Although, considering that the tyrant was one, that actual tyrant was one of the best tyrants in the series. I've got oh, yeah. to say as well, when you fight him on the plane, that was intense. That was quite a few. And again, if you had, a, you'd make sure you had a lot of explosive darts. I found yeah, that they, like... they were really useful in that fight. I always, I always wind up using the BOW gas rounds from the security office on it. 
No, oh my gosh, because you only get them once, don't you? And it's the only time in ever any game you get the BOW gas rounds, and you never know how effective they are. And I remember the f- my first ever playthrough, I saved it and saved it. And then I think at the very end of Antarctica level, you, you've got to rush back through the kind of main processing hall, the parcel hall, and there's suddenly about 10 or so zombies, and you're like, I've got time for this shit. And I just fi- <laughs> I just fired it, and then obviously they all kind of go down. I thought, oh, that that's, for me, that was the perfect use of the gas rounds. I don't know how effective they are actually as a as a weapon. But yeah, the, uh, the tyrant, because that took a lot of investigation as well, just briefly digressing about, because it was obviously, it came out of, a, it said TO-78, which didn't make any sense at the time, really, considering we were up to 103. But then it was quickly revealed that it was just a normal tyrant without the limiter coat, and it was batch number. It was a 78th tyrant yeah. Yeah, of the batch from Sheena, presumably. Yeah, well, yeah, because it was a T103 without a limiter coat, wasn't it? Yes, uh, sli- uh, I guess slightly modified, though. It does, it does look a bit different. What were the hunters that you've come across? Ah, yes, good point. Yeah, were, they, are they radio- were they radioactive? What were they? These are Hunter 2s, and these are the first time you've, I think you've encountered BAWs from a, from this rival organisation, of which HCF is the paramilitary group. They were based on the original Alpha models, taken from the information, the combat data that Wesker obtained from the mansion incident. What made them better, in fact, Arguably, I think the best hunters, even beating the elite hunters from Dead Aim, was the fact that obviously they could react to the drones. Yeah, the surveillance systems, they were programmed to attack the targets that these surveillance drones found. Not those ones, though, Nick. The, the ones when you come no, down... Sorry. To, <laughs> the ones that they've, they've, they've sort of got a different colouring to their skin. Yeah, the sweeper. It's it's the same creature, it's just... Yeah. It has poisonous claws. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. considered a subspecies of it, and there was actual discussion about how they were poisonous. I think me and Newsbot discussed a long time ago now, was it's likely that the skin secretes the kind of venom and the poison, and then kind of like trickles down onto the claws, so therefore when, you, when you're when you slashed by it, that's how you are poisoned, because there's no other way you would be poisoned, would it? Like some species of frog? Yes, exactly, yeah, like the poison dart frog, which obviously would make uh, perfect sense. Thing is, it's an amphibian based. We did it! We're finally out! <laughs> Look, there's a snowmobile over there! Perfect! We'll be able to ride right over to the Australian base with this! Yeah, let's go! Don't forget about this, Claire.
I don't know what everyone else thought, but I really enjoyed some of the files in this one that, you know, me almost on a par with Keeper's Diary and that sort of stuff. Early on, you find the prisoner that, you know, it's it's a countdown, everyone around him is slowly being slaughtered and there's just him left and there's, the, you know, real desperation and horror in that. You've got the guillotine around the corner that's mm. pretty horrific. But yes, the, the, I, I really enjoyed some of the files in, in this game. Yeah, all oh, the stuff leading up to that torture chamber in the basement. Yeah. Yeah. What was uh, everyone's impressions of the HD collection? I myself haven't got it. Um, I know we've touched on it in previous podcasts when it kind of got released. Uh, Batman, I think you said you've downloaded it, haven't you? Yeah, I preferred it. I mean, the game itself is a lot darker. I find myself having to use the lighter a lot more. They've improved a lot of things, like the shadows are a lot better. Like, you can see Claire's shadow on the wall when you're running along, and they've redone the water effects. Uh, It's really evident that bit where you go in the training facility and you have to go in the sauna and jump in the pool to get the key off the floor. You can see the water effects have been completely redone. Okay. And also the fire as well. Like there's, uh, Is it the underground torture chamber that's on fire when you go in? The crematorium? Yes. Yeah, all the shadows and lighting are flickering on the walls. That's that's really cool. Um, yeah, I think it's it's not fixed everything, obviously, but it's it's definitely an improvement. The only thing wrong with it is the cutscenes yeah, themselves. Yeah. They're pretty Very choppy. Yeah. I just like the the little extra detail that you can find just you know in in just the items that you pick up and you know you just descriptions and things are just that much clearer. Um, something Project Umbrella member Vito has asked about is Dij the little mouse. Um, I, I that little guy. That little that little rodent there that you kind of first see. He needs his own game. <laughs> New spot's not here, is he? But I I don't know if he still prescribes to this theory that this this was a an intelligent boosting mouse i don't know what particular what virus would, would it have been the wrong, wrong <laughs> virus but uh the tofu virus of course oh the tofu <laughs> virus that was it yeah <laughs> he has got his own page on project umbrella but it, yeah it, he was considered a bow you know it's actually kind of funny if you go into the resident evil outbreak uh gallery there's a picture of a, a mutated rat and yes. apparently, you give the T-virus to a rat, and apparently it just gets a little angrier and a little tumor-like growth and doesn't really do much else. So, you saying that, you know, it's a mouse B.O.W. The only thing is that he's intelligent enough to be a compulsive diarist like everybody else. That's that's not the weirdest thing in this series. You could go with that. <laughs> well, obviously you have the rats spread the virus, and they didn't turn into hideous creatures. And it seems that mammals themselves don't actually grow exponentially in the game. The real result. question is how he holds the pen. Well, that, that, that's the biggest question of the series. Yeah. And he's still out there, isn't he? Because he, you see him escape on a Wesker submarine at the end. <laughs> he's, he's still out there somewhere. I like to think if you were to go to Claire's office at TerraSave, she's got a mouse in a cage. <laughs> I'd like to see him sitting on Derek Simmons' shoulder in RE6. <laughs> <laughs>
What's that, DIJ? Kill them all. Good idea. Neo Umbrella. That's a great name. <laughs> it's like Pinky in the Brain. The, 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 conclu- the, the conclusion of RE6 is that you burst into Derek Simmons' office and shoot him, and it turns out he's been a robot the entire time. It's just DIJ in a control ca- chamber in his chest cavity. <laughs> He just it, looks up and he goes, Narf. Narf. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then, and then Carla turns and goes, what are we going to do tomorrow? Same thing we do every night. Try to take over the world. And blame it on Ada. And blame it on Ada. <laughs> ah, groovy, groovy. Um, what was everyone's genuine favourite moment? A, a lot We've touched on a lot of actually, you know, thinking back to a lot of the game. There's a lot of really good standout moments, but um, what would everyone say was their pinnacle of the game? I actually liked it where he turned up as Chris to Rockford Island and obviously his reunion with Wesker was pretty cool. Mm. I thought it was quite clever, even though Rockford Island has the shittiest self-destruct system <laughs> in the world ever. But I thought it was quite clever how it changed the layout of the training facility, whereas you know, with Chris, obviously some rooms were blocked, but you could walk through walls you know, where the explosion had damaged the walls, so it sort of gave you, you know, a new route through the building. And the same in Antarctica as well with all the frozen ice. So you could reach sections where you couldn't, you know, reach as close. That was pretty cool. But for me, it was uh, yeah, it was definitely the Wesker-Chris reunion, which was obviously enhanced by the big fight they have at the end of Cold Veronica Rex. Okay, George? I was just sitting here thinking, I really don't like being told to deposit things in security boxes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, to get the TGO one. What's even more annoying is if you get all the way to Antarctica and realise that you've left the fire extinguisher back on Rockfall in that security box. And so you, oh, can't, yeah. out, you can't put out the fire. And can't I think, get the magnum. I can't get the magnum. There's little things I really enjoyed, just little things like the guillotine and, and the, the, the diary that goes with that. But for me, walking up to the residence for the first time and just seeing it with the lightning hitting it and then going in there and seeing this and this suspended doll, just that with the music that goes with that, it's some really creepy music as you go into that residence. The whole feeling that went with that, that, that was my favourite moment of the game. Uh, Thomas? I like Clara's fight with the tyrant of the plane, especially her line after the fight, where she kind of brushes the whole thing off as just a big cockroach that she had to step on. It was a good moment. And to be fair, just before you said that, I was thinking that you got a lot of satisfaction out of that, especially obviously launching the, the catapult at the end. Yeah. It's a tough I, fight. It's a tough fight. Yeah. You know, Claire is the only person in the entire friggin' series who has a sense of humor, that kind of... Yes. As, as opposed to Leon, who has one, but is kind of bad at it. <laughs> For me, um... Certainly not a favourite moment by any stretch, but that whole kind of deposit your security box. I found that quite quite cool because you obviously had to deposit all your weapons, and I found that quite exciting and that, that quite tense. That moment. you know, you when when you do that bit and the zombies come through the window and you're yeah. obviously unarmed, is it is it actually possible to get past them without getting grabbed? Yes, that, uh, you lead them back into the room towards where you you make the the fake with the TG one thing. Yeah, and you can kind of lead them there, so you can then. You know, if they're slow enough, because I think, isn't this the first game where the zombies can suddenly just run at you? I don't know, did anyone else notice they kind of can sort of slope around a bit and then suddenly they just they, they get this burst of speed? They're a lot faster in Code Veronica, yeah. You yeah. notice it really strongly in the battle game, where yes. suddenly it's just like, okay, I'm a lot faster than most zombies, I'm going to bite your neck now. If you want to do something about that, too late. There is a few fast zombies in it, though, isn't it? Isn't it the zombie in the sarcophagus who comes out with the sword through him and he follows you through the door? Isn't he I love that <laughs> Yeah, the doctor's fast as well, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, fast and tough. Yeah, uh, I don't know my favourite moment. I, 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 there's lots of little points. I, I did. I like the whole Steve bit at the end. I found that was quite cool because it all got, it kind of almost let you know led up to the big boss fight with Alexia. I didn't like the linear launcher. I thought that was stupid. 
Oh, good um, lord. Just, you know, oh, come on. You know, it's almost as bad as the anti-TG virus gun. The whole final boss, though, was, was shit, I think. There's not really much strategy to it. You've just got to shoot, shoot, use herb, use herb, shoot, shoot. You know, yeah, and there's also a little glitch, isn't there? If you if you have the grenade launcher, walk straight up to the belly and launch three times. Just go bang, 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 and then it shoots, the fly comes out. Uh, I don't know, favourite moment for me? I don't know. I did like the whole beginning sequence because I thought it was extremely creepy. You know, from the moment we meet Rodrigo, he says, go, get out of here. And you're like, no, I want to stay, actually. You know, <laughs> I'm all right. Because you hear the, all the guns going off and all the, you know, all the bombs. You're like, I'm just going to stand here and watch you bleed to death because yeah. that's safer. Yeah. I just, I, yeah, I thought the whole build up up to the prison, I, although the prison was a bit dull, I liked the good use of the Cerberus. Because they kind of run out, don't they? They run out. I like that. The whole beginning bit up to when you get into the training facility. I thought it kind of went a downhill a bit when you got into the training facility. But that the first kind of build up was quite good. And the moment in the prison where you get the the, the two guns, the MPs, and then they will come bursting through the door. I thought that was quite. Oh, the calico. Yeah, that was quite good. So that's probably my favorite. The whole kind of like first maybe half an hour, 45 minutes. So what would everyone score it now? Considering all our discussions here, what would everyone score it out of 10? Uh, Thomas. I'm not playing your numerical scoring game because I have a complicated relationship with it. I know what I'd change if I if, if somebody were to show up at my door and say, hey, uh, I'm John Capcom, here's some money, how would you change Code Veronica? I know what I'd, you know, a lot of branch points like RE3 add some replay value that way, but I think numerical scoring is kind of a crutch. It has not aged very well at all, and it has a very, I touched on this earlier, that they kind of threw in everything they could think of just to see what would stick. There's definitely signs of kind of a rushed uh, development cycle. Because I know for a fact that it changed platforms relatively early in its development process. That's why RE3 got thrown together as quickly as it did. And you know, there's stuff about it I like, there's stuff about it I really don't like. Every so often I get the itch to replay it again, but I know eventually I'm going to run into that goddamned glass cannonball puzzle near the end of the game, and that's going to kill everything I like about it. So, um, pass, I guess. Okay, <laughs> uh, George? <laughs> um, it falls down a little, for me, not necessarily on, on the points that the Wanderer makes, they, I'm not. No, I mean, what I mean is, I'm not. Uh, I'm not perhaps as affected by those criticisms, although I, you know, I think they're legitimate. There should be a hard difficulty mode for this game, and that would certainly in- increase my enjoyment and appreciation for it. I think I'm probably going to be the giving it the highest marks. I, I, I'm actually really seriously debating whether to give it seven to eight. I'm, I'm definitely going to give it seven out of ten for me, and I almost consider giving it eight because just because of the sinister atmosphere, the iconography. And the themes that I think were really brave and, and really worked well. Seven out of ten. No, seven and a half out of ten. Seven and a half. Batman? Um, yeah. It's not aged well. Um, I wasn't a fan of the main characters. Claire's my least favourite main character. Steve is the worst supporting character ever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> The characters in the game were okay, but I was more fascinated by like Edward Ashford, and we know nothing about him. But to <laughs> me, I think he's more interesting than Alfred Ashford. But yeah, and there was little gameplay quirks I didn't like. That seemed to be a step down from Resident Evil 3. Like, you can't walk upstairs in this game. You know, I you just press a button. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it was all right, but I would give it. I would say five, but I do like Ooh, the HD. Oh. I do, I do like the HD one, so I'll knock That's it up hard. to six. Six out of ten for me. It's the main series game I play the least. Put it that way. And right. Steve, Steve is dead. He's not coming back. <laughs> he is dead. There was real venom in your voice when you said that. 
I just don't understand why would people think he's coming back. He's dead. Wesker was just taunting Claire. It's obvious. Out of the main uh, series games, it's one I play the least. That and Resident Evil Zero, albeit the minus the first half hour on the train. I would actually agree with George in scoring, though. I'd, say, I'd give it a seven. I think, although it hasn't aged particularly well. I gave it seven and a half. Oh, okay, I'd, I'd give it a seven. I enjoyed it for what it was, and I think even you know, listening to what we've discussed today, there's a lot of quality moments in the game. Yeah. There's a lot of standout points. You go, oh yeah, that was good. The, you know, I've totally forgot about the doctor scene. That was that was amazing. And the whole build up to that, we're putting the glass eye and that kind of thing. I loved all that, but too much backtracking for my liking. But yeah, lots of golden moments. So I, th- I think seven. I think seven. Sorry, one more thing I wanted to say: the big spider under the ice. That was cool because you just yeah. knew you just knew that fucker was going to get out somehow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Mark out of ten. Yes. Um, I shall give it. A very reasonable 8 out of 10. Well, that's, the, that's, that's the highest of everyone. Yeah, that's even higher than mine. Uh, I like Cold Veronica. I think it's got good atmosphere, especially when you're in the, uh, the, the residence. Yeah. But, you know, very good atmosphere in there. Plus, it gives you insight to another facet of the Umbrella Corporation, the side we haven't seen much of which, to the, up to that point, which is the Ashford family. And it introduces this whole sort of, you know, backstory about this family and such and such my only qualm is that they didn't really sort of flesh out a bit more you know they they didn't really go anywhere with the ashfords and uh i kind of wish they would have elaborated on that but oh well right well um i'm pleased to say we've had two call-ins this week it's been re-edited so the first call-in we've had is from project umbrella member lou that's l-e-w um and he wanted to comment on the series so let's take a listen to what he's got to say Hey guys, Lou here from the forums. Uh, saw you were going to be talking about Code Veronica, and so I figured I'd just give my two cents. It's probably my least played game in the series, probably alongside Zero. I bought the GameCube version, and I played it about eight years after it came out, so I'd, you know, I'd heard about the hype when it first came out, but I hadn't played it. Didn't have a Dreamcast, I was a little young. The plot itself is pretty good. Sugimura, I think, was leaning more on his experience with a lot of uh, tokusatsu shows, superhero shows in Japan, because honestly, the villains, the Ashfords, just the, the element of the T Veronica virus, everything, it felt more at home with like a Sunday morning superhero show, like, than it did with a pharmaceutical corporation. I mean, Alfred felt like a very comic book villain, and uh, same with Alexia. Uh, it wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but it just felt like the series was really taking that full transition from just horror to more kind of science fiction. I don't know. It's it's an interesting transition. Be that as it may, the story itself I really do enjoy. I like the whole concept of uh, different examples of siblings and brotherhood and how it's done well and how it's done not so well, you know. With Chris and Claire being the trusting brother and sister, doing everything to be reunited. Um, Alfred and Alexia basically being this completely divided and, you know, unrequi- unrequited admiration on Alfred's part compared to Alexia, and, of course, the complete mess that they get into with um, Alexander. Alexander, uh, you know, and then, of course, we have Steve, who I can understand his lack of trust towards everybody because his family basically screwed him over, his dad in particular. Uh, the music in the series is probably my favorite soundtrack. Uh, I love the very orchestral and dramatic tone to it, uh, particularly the ongoing da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da melody is not only gets stuck in your head, but it's just there are a lot of good covers and renditions of it. Um, Wesker coming back was not necessarily a problem for me. Granted, I played the game, of course, after, you know, the whole reveal had happened. It didn't have as much of a punch as it would have if I played the game in 2000, but I don't think he was too bad in this. I'd say that between the first game and particularly Remake and 
Code Veronica, I think those are the best incarnations of Wesker because he's not too superpowered, but he's still some man, you know, playing, pulling the strings. And you can tell that he's got an agenda, which was very interesting. And you could tell, you know, he wasn't human anymore. And it was, it was kind of humbling to see Chris kind of wake up to number one, my commander's still alive. Number two, I'm getting my ass kicked. Um, when it comes to the characters, I they've grown on me. Claire was handled pretty well. She'd grown up and matured, and I liked how she seemed more confident and more calm than she did in 2, and it made sense. Chris, I think, exhibited much more personality. It was We saw more of his hot-blooded side and is more determined, you know, I'm going to save you, Claire. I'm going to stop this take-down umbrella kind of side with him. Steve, you know, looking back... I think aside from, you know, picking the most Canadian voice actor imaginable in not even not in a good way kinda uh aside from his voice, you know, I'm sorry, clear no, um other than that he he grew on me in the sense of, you know, I know what they were going for. They were going for the stereotypical, you know, hot hot blooded, you know, punk teenager who's got issues. He's not my favorite character. He did get very annoying, but I think in the end he did redeem himself to an extent. But he's still one of my least favorite characters. Alright, um, enough about the uh, the storyline. The gameplay wise, I think part of the reason I don't play this one as much as the others is just because it gets very frustrating. I know that I'm supposed to conserve ammo and, you know, keep items, but the first half of the game with Claire is just a fetch quest. It's just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Get an item, make a copy of the item, make another copy of that copy, and then put that in a door, and then remove the item from the door, and then, oh, you're going to have to use it in some other area. It's just going around endless fetch quests that really just feels worse than the PS1 uh, games. And in general, the game's graphics and the gameplay just feels very dated, even compared to the PlayStation 1 games, which I love. Graphically, it's very murky. It's very hard to see what you're looking at on screen. I feel like the, uh, the camera could have been better. I don't mind the pre-rendered uh, angles from the previous games, but I think the moving camera was a good idea. But it just moves at the at very weird times, and you, again, you can't see much because it's all very dark, very murky, very muddy textures, very hard to see. And, and you, anyways, guys, uh, take care, and thanks again for the podcast and all the stuff you've been doing for the site. Later. I, I kind of see where he's going with that because my housemate is a big tokusatsu fan. So about once a week, I can look forward to walking through my living room and there'll be about 12 nerds out there watching Kamen Rider. And I could definitely see Alexia Ashford just completely without alteration in any way whatsoever showing up in one of those shows, just walking down the stairs. And, <laughs> now I will destroy Angel Grove, you know, because I think he's got a very good point there that she is very much kind of. She's okay right up until she turns into the chitinous exoskeleton lady, at which point it's like she jumped in from the wrong genre. He's making some very good points off that we already made previously about you know the changes. That he said it was his least played as well, that with Zero. So It's weird, isn't it? People either seem to love it or hate it. It's always either Cold Veronica or Zero. That seems to be people's least favorite. We've had a, another call-in as well. This is from our resident friend and recently banned member of Tier. It's Crimson Elder. Hey guys, what's up? This is Crimson Elder from uh, the sunny hills of Wales, your man from the valleys. I wasn't actually going to call in for a quarter hour. I was going to wait for RE5, but I started right down through North, and I realised they had a lot to say, so uh, I'm going to start with location. Um, I really liked the, the island um, compared to the Antarctica. I thought it was, I thought the island was much better. It was more creepy and, and gothic and stuff. I just want to say a um, quick note about Nosferatu. I thought he was a really good enemy. Um, I like the room where, where you go behind the, the cupboard um, where you find Didge and you look down and he's, he's beneath the grating. I thought that was a really good shot. Um, the Alexia boss fight 
Uh, that's a really difficult boss fight for me. It's probably one of the most hardest bosses in the series, in my opinion. On a, on a similar note to that, on the PlayStation 3, I found it to be a lot easier than uh, on the GameCube and on the Wii. Um, I remember on the GameCube and the Wii, I'd always be really short on ammunition and stuff. But on the PlayStation 3 version, I had a lot more, lot more ammunition and herbs left over at the end of the game. I was wondering, uh, did, you, did you guys get the same, the same as I did? Um, I just want to say about the music, I think the music is really good. Like, if you ask someone what their favourite soundtrack of the games are, they'd probably tell you one or two. But um, I wouldn't be surprised if someone said Code Veronica. I've listed a few tracks here, um, like the Murder Size one, uh, Theme for Alexia, Part 1 and 2, Deja Vu, Ending at the Beginning, the opening movie theme and Suspended Doll, which is one of my favourites. Um, it's when you're in um, Alexia and Alfred's mansion with the with all the hanging dolls and stuff. That's a really creepy theme, that one. Um, I just want to say about the Albanoid. Uh, is this the, the first boss in the series he didn't actually have to kill? I think I've killed it like once, maybe, if if that. I, I always found it really hard because you got to like, point down and stuff and I always end up taking so much damage that i just leave it. Um, Steve's voice, obviously, um, is that as bad as Alfred's laugh, though? I don't know which one's worse. Uh, I think the difference is with the, the codex as well. I think, they, I think they're really good for the game. Um, I've heard people in the past say that it's not really that much... It didn't really bring that much to the game, but I disagree. I, I think uh, bringing Wesker into the game really helped it benefit a lot, uh, especially the fight in the, the Spencer replica main hall. I remember when I first played it on the PS2 and... Uh, Wesker runs up the wall and and she shoots a fire at him, and that was like really good back in the day. The tyrant fight on the plane, that's another really difficult boss fight because he's in such a narrow space. Is that's got to be the most difficult tyrant fight in in the series. I want to say, but um, this game like brought a lot of history into the series. He's got the Ashfords brought, brought brings in the Ashfords, um, the new virus, uh, Hank, the Spencer State replica. Was was um, the replica first? Is it first, or is Spencer State a replica of the one on the island? Wesker's report. This is also the first time we heard about the the three heads of the family, the uh, Marcus, Spencer, and Ashford. Um, it was called Veronica the first time that it was brought in. Um, as I was done a bit of research on the internet as well, and I've seen that uh, Alexia and Alfred were originally called Hilbert and Hilda Kruger. <laughs> so that was a bit odd. Um, it's a good thing they changed the name. Also, some fun extras like the the fast zombie doctor. I thought that was a good touch. And the zombie with the sword through his stomach who follows you through the rooms if you don't kill him. <coughs> um, and his digit diary. Um, the battle mode game. The the photos that you that you unlock on um, when it shows you a score. I was I'm looking through these earlier and um, there's some really funny ones on it. There's Chris playing the street. There's Chris fishing in his stars uniform for some reason. Uh, Clay holding an umbrella in front of a tank. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what the hell that one's about. Uh, Clay on a bike with like a daredevil outfit. It's like a red spandex outfit. Uh, Steve with his family. I noticed that they changed his face on the picture as well for the GameCube version. Wesker standing on the dock by the sub. The Wesker one went through a lot of changes. In the original shot, it was really, really dark and you couldn't see much of the submarine. In the second one, he's got like a loading dock and everything. Um, so I'm assuming this is how we got from the island and possibly to Antarctic on the submarine. 
um, I never, I never knew that. I thought he maybe went on a plane or something like. Um, so that picture kind of gives that away. So that's all my thoughts. Um, uh, there's a few questions in there. Hopefully, I brought up something new. And also, I hope you get my question that I've submitted to Neptune. Uh, best of luck. Uh, so I guess you hear from me for the RE5 podcast. See you guys. Okay, so thank you, Crimson Elder, for that call in. He makes some good points. He, he makes some good points. We agree on some and we disagree on others. <laughs> <laughs> right, and on that note, that could conclude our discussion on Code Veronica X. And it's now time to move on to Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. Five questions, three participants, and one topic. It's Neptune and Newsies Biohazard Quiz. Was I in the last quiz? You were in the last quiz, so let's have a quick recap of the scores uh, following the last one. Batman, you are currently in the lead with 31 and a half points. Wait a minute, how was I in the last quiz if I didn't see... Rombie acted for you. Mr. Spencer, you are second with 26 and a half points. You're doing oh, nice. Well. Good one, Rombie. You've been doing very well in your absence. And uh, George, you are one point behind with 25 points. So very close, still very close before the end of the series. Growing range of each other, aren't we, really? Very, yeah, it's good, it's good. Uh, in terms of guests, Ridley's on four, Rombie's on three, Welsh is on three, Smiley three, Syndra two and a half, Selfish Gene, Stars Tyrant and Zombie Fred with a solitary point. So, uh, Thomas, do you know the rules of our quiz? Not off the top of my head. No. Uh, you'll be joining the star in our reasonably priced quiz and... I'll be asking five questions uh, on anything to do with biohazard. Um, don't shout out the answers. Just write them down on a bit of paper or, if you're John, notepad. And then I'll ask the five questions. There'll be time to think about it. And then we'll come back and we'll go through the answers and see what you get. i got notepad open right now. Excellent. Once you've got the points, you'll obviously be added on to our Hall of Fame. The current leader is Ridley with four points. So uh, you've got four to beat to get up to the top. So without further ado... Let's crack on with question number one. So, question number one comes from Crimson Elder, who called in earlier. Um, what is the name, or who is, what is the name of the Ashford's butler? Which one? Oh. There were two. I, I may be wrong, but um, there's certainly a second letter from his butler that has a male name, but isn't there a file that contradicts that with a female name? Or am I wrong, completely wrong? No. I think he means the main butler who served most of the family. Yes, that's who I meant. Any issues, take up with Crimson Elder. <laughs> yeah, the so it's family butler. Yeah. Okay, so if you just write down your answer. Uh, question number two comes from our resident member, El Veltro. So, his second question What is Jill's code name in Resident Evil Revelations? Okay, that's a good that's, question. That is a good question. What, her code name in, in terms of the mission? <clears throat> mm. I, I know Keith's and I know what's his name, Quinn's. I didn't know that she had a radio call sign. I can give you a clue. If it... No. I've got it, I've got it. It's named after a restaurant where I work. Excellent. I think. You think? Yeah. There's a restaurant across the road from where I work. It's got the same name. I'm sure of it. Right, I put Subway as my answer. <laughs> Subway. This yeah. is Applebee's. Come in. Yeah, well, I will give a clue. This is McDonald's to Subway. Do you read? 
throw named at the fucking fast food restaurant. I, I will give it to you because you probably. You know, there's precedent for that. That would actually make sort of sense aside from being product placement. The code name is also the name of a city in the Kanto region of Pokemon. Anyway, question number three comes from Vito. Um, after his dismal performance last time with the question that George criticised for saying how ridiculously easy it is, he's come back with this for you, George. Obviously, oh, brilliant. I can't wait. What company released slash published the Biohazard Code Veronica Hong Kong comic? Aha! Oh, right. Original Hong Kong publication or the translated version? The original. <laughs> Just see what you put, and then I'll see if it's right. Okay, so, uh, okay, that, everyone got an answer? Question number four. Ogroman is based on which B.O.W.'s? Who? Ogroman. Ogroman? Yeah, Biohazard 6. Oh, the thing, yeah. Is what, sorry? Ogroman is based yeah. on which B.O.W.'s? You say which B.O.W.'s, that means there's more than one, I guess. Yeah. Um. Okay, and uh, finally, question number five. Who was bitten by the Megabytes and made a note of his impending death in Raccoon City? Bitten by who, sorry? Megabytes. Megabytes. Please. There are megabytes in Raccoon City? I mean, I'm not, okay, I, never mind. I don't hear what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> and there's the gigabyte, the big one. But who's bitten oh, by megabytes? Oh, I know who that guy is. He's, his, his corpse is in the... Um, wait, is that the one? The guy that looks like Jack Thompson. He's in the, um, the, the store in the toilets. I, I don't know. Uh, does everyone want a bonus question? Yeah, all right. Sure. Yep. Go on, man. As it's Code Veronica related, question six. What is the name... Of Rodrigo Juan Ravel's parents. Oh, man. Mr. and Mrs. Ravel. <laughs> yes, very good. Right, Mom another... and Dad, points now. <laughs> that is another good question. Great, so that concludes our quiz for this podcast. Join us after this when we'll run through the answers. Hello and welcome back to Neptune's <laughs> Bioacid Quiz. So we're going to run through the answers, see what everyone got, and see where they come on the leaderboard. So question number one was the question from Crimson Elder. What was the name of the Ashford's butler? Batman. I put Scott Harmon. George? I nearly put down Mark Harmon because I used to know someone called Mark Harmon. It's Scott Harmon. Scott Harmon. Uh, Mr. Spencer? I didn't know this one. Oh. And The Wanderer? Tom Dorson and Scott Harmon because I couldn't remember which was which. I know one of them's dead before the game even starts, and one of them isn't, but... Okay. Yeah, it's, the answer is Scott Harmon. Points there for Batman, GT, and The Wanderer. Well done. Question number two was from El Veltro. What is Jill's codename in Resident Evil Revelations? Uh, and I come to Batman last. Mr. Spencer, did you know this one? I took a guess. Yeah. Not with Subway. No. Okay. <laughs> Are you asking me for my answer? I am. Did, did my Pokemon clue help? Yeah, I just put Celadon because that's the only city I know, but I don't know if that's in the Kanto region. It is in the Kanto region, yes. Okay. Ooh. Um, GT? First of all, I put Blondie, and then when you said about Pokemon, I put Pikachu. <laughs> that's not a city. How dare you. Wanderer, did you know? Hadn't the clue. Uh, Batman? Uh, I'm going to look stupid if this is wrong, but there is a restaurant across the road from where I work called Vermilion. Very good. It very points to Batman there. Vermilion is the correct answer. Vermilion I can't even think of when the hell that's mentioned. Is is that like when she's on the roof of the with the communications antenna? 
Uh, I think it's when Chris re-establishes contact with her on the ship at the start, calling each other by the code names. Uh, that would make sense. But yes, Vermilion, obviously, for we Pokemon fans out there, is Vermilion City, which is the third gym run by uh, LT. Oh, well, what's Celadon now? Is that the second? Celadon's the one with the mark, with the big market where you can go and get all your Thunderstones. I thought in the TV series, that was where Ash fought Misty for the first time, wasn't it? That's Cerulean. Ah, of course. There we go, there we go. Anyway, question number three came from Vito. What was the company that released slash published the Biohazard Code Veronica Hong Kong comics? Mr. Spencer, what did you put for that one? I don't know. No. Something Chinese or something. Something Chinese. <laughs> uh, Wanderer? Wildstorm. Wildstorm. Uh, Batman? Yeah, I put Wildstorm. George? There are four of these graphic novels. I just want to quickly say, because the comics get a really hard deal, and I think these are absolutely fantastic and are almost identical to the gameplay, the story of the gameplay, and um, in America it's Wildstorm. Is it, is it somewhere else? No, I mean, because I don't know initially what it would have been in, in Hong Kong, but the English translations are published by Wildstorm. So I've got a different answer. Wildstorm do it, but the answer I've got is Skywalker Comics. You're not a very good quiz host, Nick, if you don't right. research your answer. Well, why would I? I, 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 think, I think that's points all round to everyone apart from Nick. <laughs> yes, I don't get any points, but uh, okay, fine. I've got a copy here, and all it says here is Wildstorm Productions stroke DC Comics. I didn't would that. any of us even know that comic book exists if not for the Wildstorm translation? Yeah. Yeah. Case closed. Points okay. all around. Points around. Uh, yeah, any issues take up with Vito? It wasn't my question. So who got points there? All Everyone of you. except Mr. Spencer. Oh, yeah, yeah, something Chinese. That's not right. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Uh, question number four was Ogroman. Ogroman is based on which BOWs, Mr. Spencer? I put Nadesu, which was the enemy in RE5. Right. George? Oh, I've got it wrong then. What's the big thing? Is that Euston or something? Because oh, I've, I've put El Gigante. I think I was thinking of the wrong BOW. El Gigante? Yeah, I think I'm thinking of the wrong one. Batman? Uh, both, yeah, El, El Gigante and Nadisu. And Thomas? Due to my spoiler avoidance, I haven't even. I don't know the names of the monsters in RE6, so I just put Gigante. Okay, points for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't looking for halves, but yeah, it's Nadisu and El Gigante. So in any of them would have been sufficient, so well done. Points for all. Do you know how I know Nadesu, Nadesu's name? Amazing. Because I was stuck on an arsehole during my professional run for all oh, five. Yeah. For the longest fucking time, I got past Jill, I got past Wesker, I got past the Irving fight pretty easily. That was the one fucker that kept me from my platinum trophy for a good two weeks. Brilliant. And finally, question number five was, who was bitten by the Megabyte and made a note of his impending death? Batman. Uh, was it a subway worker called Ricky? Okay. George? Is this from Outbreak? File two. Yeah, I had no idea. Thomas? Ricky. I thought for a second you were talking about megabytes in Operation Raccoon City and had a complete brain rewire there for a second. But yeah, it's Ricky. Uh, Mr. Spencer, do you know? So I put Ricky too, because I remember that guy in the toilets who's got the, you get the ID, is he like a friend of um, Jim's? And he's got like white hair and he's sort of slumped over the toilet and yeah, his name is Ricky. But... Correct, the answer is in fact Ricky, so well done there. Very good, very good. So, after five questions... Batman, for the first time ever... Wait, there's ha- one more question. I know there is, but we'll get to it. Uh, Batman, you have a full house. Oh, five, thank, five thank the Lord. Episodes. I'll enjoy that before I inevitably get a point taken off me next week for something. Wanderer, four out of five. George, three out of five. And Mr. Spencer, two out of five. Now, we have a bonus question. Was the name of Rodrigo Juan Ravel's parents? 
What did you put, Batman? This is where you play as Chris and where Rodrigo's injured. You can examine the walls and it tells you, doesn't it? Mm. Is that a site? All the gravestones of the people from the island. I'm getting the name. I <laughs> think to me. Nonce. <laughs> I knew where that was going. Uh, no, I'm thinking it's. Is it Martha and Robert? Martha and Robert. Okay. George, what's your answers? Um, Pretending we're not just checking wikis right now. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. Have a guess. What's his name? Rodrigo Juan Ralph. So I would Rodrigo. So his dad was called Robert, and his mum was called Rigo. <laughs> Rigo, really? Rigo. Uh, um, I believe you've just admitted to an imperfect understanding of Latin Robert. American culture, sir. <laughs> um, Robert and Regina. Regina, right? What? I'm sure that's the name Excuse me. reserved for our queen, but never mind. I guess that's what you're going for, Robert and Regina. Regina's yeah. Regina. I'm trying to make the Rodrigo from his parents' names. Okay, yeah. Mr. Spencer? I'm not sure, actually. I'm going to say, um, I want to say Juan. Juan. And um, uh, what's another Spanish name? I don't know. I'll just say Juan. That sounds Spanish enough. Juan and Juan. <laughs> yeah. Did we get a point per name? I'm going to see if anyone gets it right. Wanderer? I want to say his mom's name is Maria, because I'm pretty sure... I remember the gravestone that you were talking about. And, of course, if you're talking about somebody from anywhere in South America, you can say Maria, and you'd be about got about a 50% chance of being right. That's a very popular name down there. Mm-hmm. I think I think that yeah. is right, actually. I think and right. uh, Roberto? I don't know. Right, well, the actual answer, at least according to Newsbot, <laughs> is Robert... And Mary. I Ooh. Well, as no one got the answer, no one gets any points. I said Robert. I said Robert. Robert and Mary named their kid Rodrigo? Apparently so. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Uh, Batman, yes, you, you get the point. Uh, well, you get half, because that'll round you up. Yeah. I'd like sure. to think Mary's a translation error, and in the Japanese it's Martha. But that's that's just me. I'm just making that up. <laughs> GT, you get half as well. In the original Japanese, they're actually Steve and Bob. It's more complicated. Than <laughs> Is it okay? Uh, so that's it. That's it. No one else has got any points. So uh, let's have a look at the final scores. Batman, you scored five and a half, which puts you oh dear, thirty-seven points. Excellent. A new thirty-seven. Thirty-seven points in second place for the first if you'd time. You'd see clerks. The number thirty-seven would be funnier. Okay. Unbelievably, George has taken second place. Come on! <laughs> he scored three and a half. It is now on 28 and a half points. Mr. Spencer slipping to third for the first time, I think, since probably episode one. Since records began. Yes. <laughs> 28 points, only half a point behind. And the Wanderer, as already mentioned, you score four points. So you go joint first. I'm coming for you, Trevor. Oh, I, I, just, not. You know, I think I think that's really bad spirited, Mr. Spencer, because I just had an image then of, of just like me and you holding hands, like crossing the line together at the end, you know, arm in arm. Oh, no, it sounds kind of gay. The guy <laughs> named the guy named Spencer is going after the guy named Trevor. <laughs> well, anyway, that that concludes our quiz for episode 10. So join us next time when we'll have a new set of questions.
We do. Anyway, so there we go. Thank you very much, gentlemen. That was a very good quiz, as always. I like the bonus question. That got you all thinking, so there we go. Next episode, which we will be recording very soon. Batman, do we have a date? Sometime towards the end of next week, I think it'll have to be. Towards the end of next week, we'll be covering the ever-controversial Resident Evil 5. Now, Mr. Spencer, please make sure you're around for this one, because you've already indicated on the tier forums. And Wait, what? when is this again? I don't know. We'll, we'll let you know. I want to know who in Capcom's character design department has a thing for Halle Berry. That's my first thing. <laughs> well, I need to sort of see uh, when this is so I can check my raid calendar and see if I've got anything going on. Raid calendar? Really? Yeah. Raiding on WoW. Ne- oh, who knows? Ne- <laughs> next episode, we're going to be covering Resident Evil 5, which uh, divides. <sighs> I, I say divide the, the fan base. I, I don't think it does divide it at all. Most people hate it. So um... I see, all joking aside, I, as someone who doesn't particularly appreciate it, I was all quite clear in my mind. I thought that was in the minority. I, I thought generally it, it was very popular. No? I'm quite surprised. I, didn't, I, I thought hating it was, was very much in the minority. Well, this is one of our many topics we can be discussing. <laughs> I'm going to be playing lots of Lost in Nightmares because I don't. I, I almost feel that that should be a separate podcast. Joining us for episode 11, which is the Resident Evil 5, is returning guest, Stars Tyrant. He is very eager to uh, be on the Resident Evil 5. I think to defend it somewhat. I think Stars is one of the uh, few that really love it. Um, he will be probably faced with a barrage of abuse from myself for the game. So we've got that to look forward to. Um, the plan is, as mentioned in the previous podcast, we're trying to get, obviously, Code Veronica is now done. We've got Resident Evil 5, then Damnation. We're going to get them all out before the end of Resident Evil 6 comes out. So we're all fully prepared, and then we're going to have a big podcast on Resident Evil 6. So uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, on that note, it's goodbye from me, Neptune. Goodbye from me, Batman. Goodbye from me, Mr. Spencer. There we go. Good night from me, Mr. Trevor. Good night, Gracie.